my fellow Westorians. Welcome back. It's Sunday. It's Valar Rerita's time. It's world building time. We're freshly back from San Diego Comic-Con, me and Ashea. If you haven't already seen our Dragon's Den video, maybe because you're a podcast subscriber, it's only on YouTube or you can find the link on Facebook or Discord or on Patreon or on Twitter. It was a really fun experience. It took about 20, 25 minutes where you interact with a whole bunch of actors who are playing the roles of guards, gold cloaks, or merchants around King's Landing. And then you go through a shrine with an actor who's got all these lines and he's a dragon keeper. And he tells you all these different things. And there's a bunch of different rooms. There's a big skull. There's eggs. You hatch an egg. And it's really cool. It was a lot of fun. So we taped the whole thing. And we actually went to drag- to it. Yeah, we actually went to Dragonstone. That is where some of it is, where we hatched our dragons. That's right. So very relevant to today's episode. <laughs> yeah. And we got to hang out. We got to do it with Naomi Makes Art, who is a fantastic artist. We've mentioned her name many times and yeah. displayed her art many times. Yeah, if you've seen our Dance of the Dragons coverage, you've seen Naomi's art. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, and you'll be seeing more of it as well. She's inspired by House of the Dragon. Speaking of House of the Dragon, it is... Currently July 31st, 2022, House of the Dragon starts in three weeks. So we are preparing for that. The topics are a little more dragon-y in orientation. A worthy topic regardless, though, Dragonstone is. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sean, do you have any blood or fire in your drink today? Dragon's blood? Mm, you know, what kind of drinks does a volcano maybe drinking lava, perhaps? That's pretty red. Mm-hmm. That's a, this is a pretty blood red color. Does look like I blood. wonder if all dragons have the same color blood. Is that uh, something that we know at all? We don't. I think their blood is like black. But we have seen a couple of different dragons bleed, and I don't think there's variety in their color of their blood. There's definitely variety in the color of the fire that they emanate, though, that they breathe out. Okay. The show didn't really do that for the first time around. Maybe they will this time. I'm guessing they won't. Like, it doesn't... It's a little too weird, maybe, too fantastical, maybe. But in the books, yeah, they have... Their color corresponds to their color, their fire. So, like, from the trailers, they're not breathing colored fire, so I kind of doubt it. But anyway, what's yeah. in that drink there? I do have a new thing. I've got the the rainbow naked drink okay. and the mango bang, but also Dr. Pepper Dark. Dr. Pepper Dark. Flavor. Dark. Yeah, it's like a berry flavor. Yeah. You pivoted away it's from like a, kind it's of a dark purple label. And, yeah, okay. yeah. No wonder there's no Mountain Dew in there. That's why it's uh, darker, huh? <laughs> Changing it up a little bit, yeah. Well, you needed Volcano Dew today for Dragonstone. 
<laughs> I guess volcano dew is lava. Yeah, uh, but... <laughs> dragon monsoon dew. Yeah. There is code red. There is a mountain dew called code That's red. That's true. That might have fit. That might have been appropriate for today, too. Mm-hmm. Speaking of dragons and dragony related things, check out our good friend Nina's blog, goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's one L in Alley. Her latest post is on the dragon egg of Maylor. And what happened to it? Whether it will be relevant in Fire and Blood Part 2 or elsewhere. So you're going to want to read that, see what she has to say. Because that egg remains a bit of a mystery. Along with some other eggs. And eggs will be part of what we discussed today. Dragonstone has seen more dragon eggs than any other location in Westeros by far. So that makes it pretty special, very dragony. You're welcome to ask questions ahead of time. As always, send them to us on Twitter or Facebook or Discord or through email or on Patreon, however you prefer. Or you can join the discussion live and ask questions directly in the comments to Ashea, who will post them for me and Sean to take a look at and for her to weigh in as well, if she cares to. And the rest of you can also answer the questions that way if you're live and participating in the discussion. As usual, we'll start off with our trivia question. In Stark, no pun intended, Starks have nothing to do with this question. Contrast to the dark volcanic look of Dragonstone, one of the castles subject to it, as in a vassal of it, in the Narrow Sea, so another in that general region, was built with the same pale white marble used to make the Erie. So you got the dark volcanic, you got the white marble. The opposites here. What is the name of this castle? Bonus question, where is the marble imported from? Because it's not from the Vale. I think it was in our Clans of the Vale episode, we pointed out that the, the guy who built the Erie was like, you know what, this Vale marble is crap. We need to get it from somewhere else. So if you know that one, then you get the bonus question. Quickly, a timeline of Dragonstone. And I say quickly, because although Dragonstone is right up there in importance, significance, thematic resonance, mysteries yet to be revealed, plots yet to happen. It isn't actually been in place in Westeros nearly as long as Storm's End, Winterfell, Castle Rock. Those places have been around thousands, thousands, and thousands of years. Whereas Dragonstone is only 600 years old. It was built roughly the same time the Twins was built, actually. They were, it's a, I wouldn't be able to tell you which was built first. They were very close together, roughly. Wow, they're as ancient as the twins. That's (laughs) prestigious. (laughs) That's right. The Freys and the Targaryens, roughly equal in prestige (laughs) and popularity (laughs) and in number of descendants. So, yeah, so 300 years prior to the conquest, it was built roughly. And now it's the year 300, roughly. So, about 600 years. It was ruled from about the year when it was built to about the year 114, ruled by unknown Valyrians. And those would have been lower-ranking, non-dragon lords, though associated with dragon lords, as we'll see, there's occasionally dragons were seen in this era flying around, not attacking anyone that we know of, at least not, not army size, but just being spotted from here and there. And we're going to talk a little bit about what they might have been doing. In 114 before the conquest, 114 BC, isn't it nice how we get BC in the real world and in this? <laughs> Anar. Coincidence? <laughs> yeah, it's the real world. It's been the real world all. We're going to find the Statue of Liberty below the Red Keep. <laughs> we're like, oh my God. No, no, no. We're going to find the Red Keep below the Statue of Liberty. Oh my God. <laughs> now that would truly be, whoa. 
And, it, and some dragon bones to go with it. Yeah. A big skull of Valerian. The whole purpose of the Statue of Liberty was to cover up <laughs> dragon's bone. It was a, <laughs> a French conspiracy. That's French. <laughs> <laughs> Always hiding the, the crimes of <laughs> dragon lords. <laughs> Typical France. So, yeah, Anar Targaryen, Anar the Exile, the Lord who left was his other nickname arrives and just claims it. And we're, that's something else we'll talk about during this episode. Like, wh- they just took it? They show up and like, okay, this is ours now? I mean, I get it. They had dragons, but is it really how it went? Then in 102, so 12 years later, they went from being the only dragon lords in Westeros to the only dragon lords because the doom happened. And m- although many other structures like Dragonstone would have still exist in the world, it's, it uses Valyrian architecture and Valyrian te- building techniques. So all of a sudden, Dragonstone became semi-unique in the world. There's other buildings like it around the world, but not many. There were a lot, and now there's a few. So that, that's also made it, added to its significance and its, its uniqueness. Let me ask a question. Yeah. This, I feel like maybe I should already know this, but I'm thinking of certain uh, structures or uh, traditions. I can't think of the phrase used here. And I'm curious how much of it came from the Targaryens or how much the Targaryens adopted from what was already there. Specifically, I'm thinking of like the, 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 the kings of the, the seven kingdoms before the Targaryens came, like, you know, did the Reach have a, a, a seven, a, a Kingsguard? Oh, no. They would have had... You know that one, yes. They would, the Kingsguard was formed by Visenya, like early in the first, during Aegon the Conqueror's reign. Okay. But they would have had trusted guards. Like that's a concept yeah, as old yeah. as time. But it wasn't a specific a... order, like with no marrying. In the Reach, they would have had something like the Order of the Green Hand. Yeah. And that would have, okay. wasn't direct, so their job wasn't to guard the kings. Yeah, equivalents. Um, what about guards? Master of Coin, Master of Ships, things of that nature? Were those things positions that Targaryens installed or were they existent already? Those were things that Targaryens installed as well. They're more Eastern. Those are more associate traditions to have titles like that. They've changed them up a little bit. Like it would have been Grand Admiral. In S and a lot, and some of like in say Volantis or Tyrosh, perhaps. But there would have been similar things. Like you would have had like a top financial guy in the Reach. He just wouldn't have been called Master of Coin. And they might not have had certain other positions. Like I don't think there would have been a Master of Ships for the for the for High Garden. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there may not have, and certainly wouldn't have been for like the Eerie, but they would have maybe had some other ones, like some sort of hereditary. Like there's the the Gates of the Moon, and that's a hereditary title for someone who's in House Aaron. It's a really big deal, and they don't have a specific job, but it's a traditional title. I mean, they, they kind of sort of have a traditional job, but it's not it's not as it's not as specific as Master of Coin or something like that. So they would have equivalents to a lot of these jobs, but kind of like how a lot of different governments around the world have titles that are similar. Yeah, overlapping. we have a. Secretary of the Treasury, Minister of the Treasury, things yeah. like that. Sometimes you know, Prime Minister but, and President aren't that different, but they're the same title. Sometimes they are substantially different, but yeah, it just depends. So a good question, a very good question. Yeah, and I think the Targaryens, like the Targaryens didn't seem to have this before they founded the Iron Throne. Like I don't think there was, I don't think Anar the Exile had a Master of Coin, but Aegon the Conqueror, once he had, once they formed all that, they did. And that would have been the yeah, kind of when decision. When they're just when they're just on Dragonstone, they might not have the need for as many administrative positions. But once they're ruling seven kingdoms, and they do, so yeah, you're right. Yeah, it creates a larger need for a bigger bureaucracy is needed for more people being managed. I guess that kind of stands to reason in general. George R. R. Martin credits 
Dragonstone as the first fan site for A Song of Ice and Fire ever made. It is no longer around, though. So no, no giving, we'll shout out their memory of <laughs> Dragonstone, the first ever website dedicated to A Song of Ice and Fire, according to George. There may have been some other one out there, but it's the one George credits, so that, that deserves a mention. And speaking of mentions, the first mention, as is often the case, the first mentions are highly suggestive, not just of place in the story, but as well as giving some detail and comparison and just general setup for what's to come, for, for all that good stuff. Here's the first mention in The World of Ice and Fire, alongside a lot of other cool stuff. With the destruction of the Roinar, Valerius soon achieved complete domination of the western half of Essos from the Narrow Sea to Slaver's Bay and from the Summer Sea to the Shivering Sea. Slaves poured into the Freehold and were quickly dispatched beneath the 14 flames to mine precious gold and silver the Freeholders loved so well. Perhaps in preparation for their crossing of the Narrow Sea, the Valerians also established their westernmost outposts on the isle that would come to be known as Dragonstone some 200 years before the doom. No king opposed them, and though the local lords of the Narrow Sea made some effort to resist it, the strength of Valeria was too great. With their arcane arts, the Valerians raised the citadel at Dragonstone. Now, there's a lot of reasons and theories and mysteries around why the Valerians didn't go farther. We've talked about it before. We talked about it during the time we, we focused on Valeria, why they wouldn't have gone this far, ranging from prophecy, supernatural things, from just they couldn't be bothered. They're rich as hell. It's really far away. Diminishing returns. They're already ultra wealthy. Like, what are you going to get? You know, and they, they just want to... Sh- stay at home, drink their fancy wine with their slaves. They don't want to go out on campaign. You know, it is stuff like that. All sorts of reasons and anything in between. All sorts of reasons you can think of. We don't need to repeat them, but just to set the table. So it's quite an implication, though, that it was preparatory for some bigger invasion and not just a trading outpost. But it is, a trading outpost is pretty much what it was, though, because the invasion never came, at least not from the freehold. It came from one house that survived the doom 200 years later. So it seems like if it had been planned to prepare an invasion, those plans were abandoned or fell by the wayside or something. Because it's just... Very long term. (laughs) Yeah, very long term, which is kind (laughs) of odd for normal length living. These aren't like immortal people that live multiple lifespans. They have the same relative lifespan as any other person. So uh, it doesn't really... sounds odd that they would plan for something that's not part of their own lifetime, you know? And they don't seem to have a lot of multi-generational plan like yeah at this point in the real world humanity might have this long-term plan of colonizing mars yes right something that we don't expect to happen for 100 years or whatever but uh, maybe some sort of prophecy maybe they had this long-term plan of saving the world from white walkers you know yeah right (laughs) it's really weird to have that plan and convince people to go over there and build it for something that's happening hundreds of years later Mm -hmm. after everyone's already dead it's unusual and you're right though the white walker thing is is a thing that there's ideas that the prophecy has existed for that long and that this was part of it. There's a notion, George mentioned it years ago, that Aegon, the Conqueror, may have had a reason. It wasn't just ambition. And surely the TV show will, will touch on some of that, if not go deeper on it. And we'll, we'll have reason to come back to that idea. And we'll have a little more reason today to bring it up as well. So if it was an invasion, though, if they were planning an invasion even that long ago, why do they start selling Valyrian steel to Westerosi? Now, there's actually got a pretty good reason for that. To a Westerosi lord, it's just one sword. Even if it's an amazing sword, it's not like, oh, God, we've sold them in the ultimate weapon. Now we can't fight them because they have a couple of Valyrian steel blades. I don't think they're that worried about that. But the wealth from one sale 
one Valyrian steel blade sold to the Seven Kingdoms could buy a lot of cell swords. So maybe it's funny to think about they were built, they were getting as much money out of Westeros as they could to then turn around and spend it on <laughs> soldiers that would invade with. It's like, let's, let's bleed them dry because they can't resist spending all their money on these swords. <laughs> they could spend all that money feeding a dragon and one dragon could take out a thousand guys <laughs> with whatever kind of sword they want. That's yeah. true. But that, I guess if we're back to this purpose of why we're, there are no dragon lords here, maybe this is someone who didn't have dragons was thinking about this or something in between. Nina suggests... It's also possible they weren't actively planning on invading Westeros, but raised Dragonstone as a, as a flag. Like, hey, this is ours. We do have a foothold here. They wanted to have a presence, a place where people could go to deal with Valyrians and have like a portal to that so far away. I don't mean like a time port, like a portal, like Littlefinger jumping from place to place. But, <laughs> you know, it's like a marketplace, an example. Yeah, just something to be established. And maybe... Some people thought they would convert it to an, an option to invade later. And at first, it was a trading post. Like, it doesn't have to be a monolith. It doesn't have to have just been one thing. It, it can change over time. We also wonder what it was called. It's called Dragonstone now, the island and the castle. What was it called before that? It might have been called Dragonstone. I mean, it's a volcanic island. It's dark and foreboding. It's, it vibes like dragons. You know, it, it's a little unique in that there aren't a lot of other volcanic islands around. So it's not like that other volcanic island. It's outstanding. So it may have had that name. It may have been called that already. You know, I can't believe this didn't occur to me before. You know, that's a, a very strong reason they might have built it there. It's because of the volcano. Yeah, you're totally right. They might right. be able to harness the power that he incubate the dragon eggs, you know, and maybe they know something about the, the lava or the earth underneath there. Maybe they wanted to... Yeah, I, I, suddenly I just thought of a flood of new potential reasons that I can't believe didn't occur to me before. Yeah, you're totally right. It's like maybe not literally like a hinge of the world like Mel Saunders says where there's extra power, magical power, but something like that maybe in a less supernatural aspect. Like, yeah, the volcano by itself does a lot for dragon growth. We know there's, there's strong evidence of that and that it was a hatchery. Yeah, something like that. A place where that's unique in the world where they can build a castle and still have their draconic powers available to them and still facilitate all that stuff. A lesson they maybe didn't learn when they moved to King's Landing and built the Dragon Pit and where there's no volcanoes there. Because what's really fascinating is that Dragon Pit is bigger. The caves within the Dragon Pit are up to five times larger than the caves at Dragonstone that were used by dragons, but the Dragonstone dragons grew larger. This is like in Dune when he goes, you know what we need is desert power. <laughs> desert need volcano power. Volcano power. Lava power. Yes. Totally. Totally. You know, even aside from the dragons or any, I don't know, fantastic element, it's a, a power source of sorts. I think like Winterfell is a more valuable castle mm. because of the natural heat that it has. You know, yeah. if it if they if it's a way to like kickstart kilns, you know, like ironsmithing mm. or even boiling water. It's just, it's just a power source they could take advantage of in a bunch, bunch of different ways. That's a good point. And, and you're right. That makes it an interesting parallel to, to Winterfell in some ways is that volcanic activity beneath the earth that heats it. Davos has been in jail and Dragonstone and he's like, it's warmer yeah. down here than it is above. And it's not quite so distinct at Winterfell. It's just not cold. It's the heat keeps it from being freezing. It's more of a balancing effort there. Nina also points out that since dragons have existed in Westeros long before the Targaryens came, even if, it, even if it was maybe in ancient times, like super ancient times, and maybe there weren't many, 
where would they chill if they're hanging out on Westeros? There's only a few volcanoes the entire continent. I don't suppose they would like hard home. That's one of the other volcano volcanic areas, but it's cold up there. Like if you're a dragon and you're you want to hang out somewhere in Westeros, it really seems like Dragonstone might be the best actual spot, like the best place. So if it's a place wild dragons hung out, then all the more reason to just give it the nickname Dragonstone well in advance of anyone else showing up there. And the Targaryens may have heard about it. Maybe I heard that there's a place called Dragonstone. Hmm, maybe we should go build a castle. Yeah, there. let's check that. Why do they call <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, look at that. There's a volcano here. Actually, yeah. no wonder. This also <laughs> could be for the reason why the Valerians weren't expanding in ways you would expect because there's no volcanoes there. Yeah, forget about yeah, it. Yeah, forget we about it. it. No volcanoes. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we just we took the one volcanic spot in Westeros, and that's now we're done because <laughs> that's it. So yeah, so the arcane stuff. It's interesting that there's less of the even though it seems like it could fit that this is mundane. Because it's, oh, they use this arcane arts to shape the stone and, and mold it into these queer shapes and, and really hard structures that are supposedly way stronger than regular stone, like potentially as hard as diamonds. But this is an obvious spot for saying, is that just technology? Is that just asphalt? Is that just something like that? But no, it's pretty explicit that magic, even George is pretty much straight up said there's magic used in it. Now, whether the stuff is magic or magic was used to shape it, that's not quite clear. Is it a magical substance or just magically formed, right? Because it may not have magic lingering in it. But even now, George, George has still hinted that, yeah, there's still maybe a little magic lingering in there. He's cagey about it. But I think that's in part because we're, just, we're nowhere near done with this location in the story. Danny hasn't gone there yet. We haven't really had POVs go deep into it. Like Davos was there, but Davos didn't have access to the really hidden areas. You know, he wanted to kill Melisandre. <laughs> he wanted to, he went to the dungeon. He went to the, the painted table chamber. We've seen that a lot. But there's a lot of places in Dragons we've never been that we might get to see through Daenerys' point of view or maybe Tyrion's or both. And so I think the best of Dragonstone is yet to come. And some we'll see on screen for the first time, not on the page, because I, I do think some of the House of the Dragon stuff will, I'll take it as fairly canon. Yeah, if it doesn't argue with existing canon, it, it, a lot of times it'll, fit in is like, well, this is probably canon unless we hear otherwise. And that we can say with more confidence than we could the first go around because George is way more involved with House of the Dragon than he was with Game of Thrones. So the detail is more likely coming from him. We also have a showrunner and Ryan Condal who, when his co-showrunner was like, should we change some of these names? There's just too many repeats. He's like, we can't. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what I want to hear. We can't. No, no changing the name. Of course, maybe Ryan wasn't thinking of Kermit Elmo and Grover Tully when he said we can't change that. I think we might have to change those. But hey, you know, fair play on, on the Muppets. <laughs> so coming back to that, Nina agrees it's probably a little of column A and column B. Yes, there's definitely magic. But yeah, why not also hire technology? The Valyrians existed longer. They probably had some castle building techniques that Westerosi don't have. So yeah, or at least different techniques. They may, not, they may not even have to be better. They probably it's worth were. noting <laughs> in the real world, if there was magic, if someone could just like conjure up a magic missile or a fireball, do you think no one would incorporate science into that? Do you think there would be no oh. engine developed that runs off fireball magic? You know, like, <laughs> Yeah, this little dude just staying there all day like, yeah, I'm done with my shift. I spent eight hours making fireballs. <laughs> but I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because this like dragon flame and we're, what we're talking about is from a technological perspective is just heat. Like greater level of heat than Westerosi can work with. 
that their technology doesn't allow. And that's basically the part of what goes on behind Valyrian Steel. Valyrian Steel is definitely has magic in it, but they're also working with the level of heat that Westerosi forges cannot produce. Not even wildfire can get that hot. So in real world history, that was like a, a key development, being able to get fires hot enough to melt gold or bronze, you know, getting stronger and stronger composite metals, you needed more heat for it. And if you have dragons, you could just like leap way ahead in that technological sphere by using magic, but you're still in the using technology. They go hand in hand. Yeah, Can you're I totally say, right. I, I think you finished Arcane, Sean, but that's one of the things I really liked about that series was that it's a lot of it is about using science and technology to harness like magical abilities. And I also really like that they do that in Brandon Sanderson's works and he's building up to that idea. Broken Earth Trilogy by N.K. Jemisin mm-hmm. also. Quite oh, a lot yeah. of magic and, and technology. Yeah, I, I think that's a really fun concept to play with. Yeah, so good, good stuff, y'all. So here's the first mention in A Song of Ice and Fire. We talked about the World of Ice and Fire. Now, take note of how it is also the first ever, if not first in Danny's chapters, mention of a lot of these other crucial locations. So Dragonstone's mentioned alongside a lot of the other most important locations in the entire series as they're being introduced. She had never seen this land her brother said was theirs, this realm beyond the Narrow Sea. These places he talked of, Casterly Rock and the Eerie, Highgarden and the Vale of Erin, Dorne and the Isle of Faces. They were just words to her. Viserys had been a boy of eight when they fled King's Landing to escape the advancing armies of the usurper, but Daenerys had been only a quickening in their mother's womb. Yet, sometimes, Danny would picture the way it had been. So often had her brother told her the stories. The midnight flight to Dragonstone, moonlight shimmering on the ship's black sails. What a description, because Dragonstone is a really incredible castle the way it looks with all its gargoyles and other strange cockatrices and wyverns and dragon heads all over it. And that would make it unusual. A lot of other Westerosi castles don't have that. And she would have this, like she said, her mind's eye of it's very vivid, even though she's never seen it. It's also the way he words it. It's their, her family's, the Targaryen's last refuge as their house is becoming doomed as it's falling apart. It was the first place they came and the last place they fled from. And Daenerys was born there. She was the last Targaryen born on Dragonstone. Nina says it also connects Danny with Aegon the Conqueror. This is where Aegon was born. Yep. Where he decided to conquer Westeros, where she will perhaps do the same. The place he always considered his favorite and best known residence. This is where he spent his formative years. He didn't really like hanging out at King's Landing. He was more comfortable on Dragonstone. He, He knew King's Landing was necessary, but... He preferred to be on Dragonstone. But he got to grow up there. She didn't. So to her, it's, it, this is part of why it's so vivid is because it's been a part of her family for so long. She's the first Targaryen in hundreds of years that didn't really get to live there. And that separates her from her family in ways that are probably deeply saddening to her. She's the first of this kind of new era, this lost element of what was so great and grand before. But it's also not as great as it sounds. I mean, as we'll see, we're going through it. Dragonstone has lots of creepy vibes. Lots of bad things have happened there. It, it doesn't come off like a good place. <laughs> you know, it's not a friendly or welcoming. And that's something that we constantly see with the Targaryens. We love Danny, at least most of us do. But there's this darkness around her. Her family history is tragic and there's a lot of evil behind it. And yeah, it's not, there's a lot of, 
nasty ambition that has emanated from Dragonstone, a lot of enslavement, a lot of a lot of dark stuff, sacrifice, magic that's maybe not on the up and up. Gives you, oh, doesn't you, give, doesn't give good vibes, does it? You know, I wonder, George has often in, in interviews and the like brought up the Brady house and how when he thinks about Daenerys' plot line, he was really channeling his own kind of feeling of loss about his old family home. That um, they no longer had anymore, That they no yeah. longer had. This is like this big kind of mansion of a house. And I wonder if he also had ruminating in his head like, oh, well, in order to be this successful or to have this big house, these people probably did some pretty terrible things. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I wonder if he had some sort of sour grapes. Like, maybe it's better this way. Like, and part of his like, boy, we used to have that. Like, most of the time, he probably wish he lived there. But some days it might have been like, yeah, maybe it wouldn't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it would have been bad for us, you know. I don't know. <laughs> Too much wealth, you know. You know, a lot of the stuff you were saying there about Dragonstone, how it has this darkness behind it. It has magic, you know, mixed up in it. Some it's ambition connected to it. I can't remember all the different things you said just there, but almost all of them apply to Stannis very, very well. <laughs> You're so right, man. Yeah. When I when I have when I think about Aegon the Conqueror and Daenerys and Stannis, it is like a triangle, like a like a, tri- a triumvirate. When Stannis sits there over the painted table, like I have to conquer Westeros because I have to save it. And we we apparently have maybe the same idea about Aegon the Conqueror out there. And he's like, Stannis even quotes at one point, sitting on the spot. Okay, so there's, the painted table has a chair in place of Dragonstone. <laughs> so he can see where it would be on the map. So he can sit there and look over it. Stannis is sitting in that exact same chair and he's like, Aegon the Conqueror sat here this, uh, looking, doing the same thing I'm doing right now. He literally said that. I mean, I don't have the wording yeah. exactly right, but it's like, hmm. <laughs> yeah, and he's thinking about the same things. Like, I need to conquer this place to save it. You know, like, hmm. He's got a, a, a he's got two, kind of has two wives. Stannis does, Melisandre yeah, and Selyse. Yeah. One of them he doesn't really like that much, but she's, <laughs> but she's important. And it's like her, <laughs> and the other one's like the one he really likes. And is younger, but isn't actually younger. But in this case, Melisandre. So yeah, there's the parallels are just, yeah, we could do a whole episode on that. We probably should, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you said like 10 different things and I didn't inter- want to interrupt you because I wanted to see how many more you could say. <laughs> I was like, are you talking about Stannis? And then you said enslavement. I was like, well, except for that one. Yeah, he didn't <laughs> do that one. But <laughs> he, he certainly has followers that he demands a lot of. It's not slavery, but you, know, you could say he's, he's very demanding of his followers, though. You know, he doesn't, he's very exacting, you could say, but not, it's definitely not slavery though. So here we go with a few more bits. We've got, let's go to, we've got the map shot. Just get the region in mind. You can kind of get a picture of what's going on there. If you're watching, listening on podcast, try to describe it for you. Of course, you've seen the Narrow Sea before. You've seen Blackwater Bay before. You can see Dragonstone. is isn't that far from land, but not close either. And that's part of its defensibility. Not only is the castle really strong, but obviously taking an island is difficult to do. That said, it has been done. We've seen it happen. In fact, it happens really near the end of A Feast for Crows and is still ongoing in A Dance of Dragons. We'll come back to that. You've got nearby Driftmark. You've got Claw Isle not too far away. You've got a lot of the other houses of the Narrow Sea that are, have ports, places like Stone Dance, Massey's Hook, and of course, King's Landing, which wasn't there initially, but was in part because Aegon realized that, hey, we can't, we can't run the capital through Dragonstone. It's too much to manage all that through this small, strong castle that's off the mainland. We need a big place. We need somewhere more accessible. So as I said, alluded to before, our best POV for now 
is Davos because he spent the most time there and actually uh, among people that actually have POVs. So a couple of quotes. Here's a short one, giving a little description of what he sees. Davos could see the shape of the mountain now. And on its side, the great black citadel with its gargoyles and dragon towers. That just sounds so cool. Great black citadel with gargoyles and dragon towers. And yes, literally it has gargoyles. It has several towers that are shaped like dragons. And they probably look pretty neat. You know, it's unfortunate that a lot of art that's been done, including the TV show, including like art commissioned by George even, a lot of it is just, it doesn't feel like it really captures what it really looks like. I think Dragonstone is one of the less well-represented pieces. There are definitely some good ones out there, but I think even a lot of the official art just really doesn't capture what it really is. So maybe, maybe we'll have to do a big deep search one day and find the best examples because I think it's, I think a lot of them don't do it, do it justice. Mog Park, who I met at the Denver Comic Con, I think I brought her up to you guys. She was like, made a big point of that too. She had some art of Dragonstone. She's like, it's supposed to have dragons all over the place. Right. So she drew it the way she thought it should be with dragons all over the well, place. We should yeah. check that one out. That sounds good. She's, I'm glad to hear like an actual artist agrees. Well, it's one yeah. thing for me <laughs> to say it, but when an artist says that, that's, that gives it a lot more <laughs> credibility. Uh, so it is a little bit like River Run in that it is, prestigious, but not that big, but still controls the area and is highly defensible in part because of water around it. Now, of course, Riverrun is, is through artifice, whereas Dragonstone is quite simply on an island. Dragonstone has villages. It's got a port with taverns, inns, all the stuff you would expect to see around a, a population center. Here's another example of Davos, but Salador San weighs in, and Salador San even uh, he has the best jokes about it. Davos gives the best descriptions. Salador gives the best jokes. Davos had often heard it said that the wizards of Valyria did not cut and chisel as common masons did, but worked stone with fire and magic as a potter might work clay. But now he wondered, what if they were real dragons, somehow turned to stone? If the Red Woman brings them to life, the castles will come crashing down, I am thinking. What kind of dragons are full of rooms and stairs and furniture and windows and chimneys and privy shafts? <laughs> well, a dragon does have a privy shaft. It's called the digestive system. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think what's funny is he's, they maybe have a little inverted there. As we were saying, the dragons may have been used to help shape it. But they may have been, rather than being frozen in life, it may have been them that helped make it. You know, I had a, a fantastic image in my mind that I think can't be true just because someone would have described it at some point. But what if the dragons are strong and tough and resistant enough to heat that they could like goop up mouthfuls of lava and, and, you know, deliver them to <laughs> stone workers, like pour them into molds or something, something that humans, especially at this in this level of technology, just couldn't do at all. But if a dragon could just get truckloads of lava <laughs> poured into molds to or, you know, laid on to layers of a castle or something. I don't know if they could walk through it. and That know, would have been very fitting in the Flintstones. Regurgitated. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I mean, Fred Flintstone worked all day on a dinosaur. That's <laughs> a construction device. Dinosaur tractor. Yeah, you wonder if that would pass muster in as far as, like, hierarchical in society. It's like, these dragon lords are the most powerful. It was like, we're not letting our dragons be used for that. That's, that's lowborn stuff. Like, are they too hotty-totty <laughs> for that kind of thing? I don't know. They'd have to cast themselves as, as artists. Ah, like yes. Construction workers, that's right. right? That's yeah. right. <laughs> so you have what's... It, it essentially is the mouth of the entrance to Blackwater Bay. Blackwater Bay is sort of contained in that, like, half moon zone there. And once you break out, then that's the narrow sea. So Black uh, Dragonstone kind of controls that area. 
King's Landing more controls the entrance, the river entrance to Blackwater Bay, where you come out of Westeros and enter the bay. But if you're going from the bay towards King's Landing, that's where Dragonstone has more control. But not total control, of course. For example, in one of the battles during the Dance of the Dragons, a large fleet just went right past. They just bypassed Dragonstone because there wasn't a big fleet there to stop them, nor were the dragons on alert or aware. So that's important. Of the two, it's, it's more strategic and defensible, but of course, it's less wealthy. Ships and trade go to King's Landing. There's a lot more facilities for that. The ports are much larger. And frankly, Dragonstone has bad storms. It, it would be dangerous to conduct large amounts of business there day in and day out because there would just be a day that comes where a huge storm would come and just wreck a lot of things. And King's Landing doesn't have that problem. Not, not nearly as bad. Don't forget, for example, Daenerys' nickname, one of many, is Stormborn. And she was born during one of the worst storms of Dragonstone, and it destroyed the fleet that brought them there, except for a few ships. And it was so nasty that some of the stone gargles were torn off the roof. That doesn't sound like a good place to do business, does it? Even if that sort of thing isn't common. But that's the kind of reason why you don't see, like, big ports built in the Stormlands either, because it's just just inevitable. One of these days, it's just going to... People are going to suffer massive harm, and, and that's a huge setback. But as lo- even though it's hard to conduct a lot of business through Dragonstone because of its size and lack of facilities, it can cause a lot of problems on the mainland. A blockade facilitated by Dragonstone could cause severe economic harm to King's Landing, especially if it's backed up by dragons, because that's a blockade that's really hard to break. The castle is really hard to take, even without dragons defending it, but as I said before, it has been taken. Nina says, I'm sh- though I'm sure Aegon the Conqueror realized the advantage of separating himself politically from Dragonstone, even if he loved it personally, Dragonstone was a Valyrian seat built by Valyrians and inhabited for the past century by expatriate Valyrians. It also stood physically apart from the rest of Westeros. By creating King's Landing, Aegon established a new start for his new dynasty, one that... And he was also, of course, trying to be less Valyrian. He took on... Like, to rule them, he tried to be more like them. He adopted the worship of the Seven. He adopted things like knighthood. He was guarded by knights. All his companions were that. He tried to be more Westerosi. It doesn't really vibe with that attitude if you're going to just put dragons on everything and do make everything look Valyrian. So he's kind of like, yeah, we're keeping this. We're not going to tear down our old castle, but it's more of a personal thing for us these days. We're not trying to project this to Westeros because Westerosi aren't going to like that. We want to give them symbols they're used to and rule through those. That makes sense, doesn't it, Sean? Like, forcing all that on people doesn't go that well. You know, they, they go, with, go with what they're used to. King's Landing was built with seven gates, right? Smart, yeah, good call. Yeah, all these vibes of, of things that people were comfortable with, used to, things that speak to their worships and beliefs, not this foreign religion that's strange and dark and <laughs> reminds, like, it's their religion specifically preaches against some of those things. Yeah, it's, it's good to keep that on the down low and kind of out of sight. But when you do want it or need it, a drag, you can fly the dragon into their face. Yeah, be like, don't forget. <laughs> now it's in your face. <laughs> yeah. We may, you, you may have, we want to keep this on the down low, but we also want you to remember that we have it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the other nearby islands like Claw Isle and Driftmark are somewhat defensible as well because they're islands and it's hard to take islands. But they don't have this quality of being built into a mountain like Dragonstone is. It's, it's in the volcano, basically, or attached to the front of the volcano, which makes it even more defensible because it's, you can't surround it. Right? Part of it is just in the mountain, where that's not the case for Driftmark or Claw Isle, for example. Let's talk a few specific features. The biggest, most notable portion of Dragonstone is the stone drum. 
It's a huge tower and keep. It's where the Great Hall of the Stone Drum is. We see this through Crescent's point of view in the prologue of The Clash Kings, which is a dragon's mouth. The kitchens have steam vents, like where the smoke and steam emanates during the cook, which are nostril, dragon's nostrils. So it's really, it's very dragony, man. Very, very dragony. I believe the chamber of the painted table was added here. We're going to talk about that later because this was not part of its original construction. Aegon the Conqueror built that like uh, within a few years before the conquest. So it wasn't there for a good 280 years or so. But this other stuff was. Sea Dragon Tower, not to be confused with Sea Dragon Point, which is a region in the north. Sea Dragon Tower does look like a dragon. It's one of those dragony towers that's mentioned. And it faces out over the water. It sounds amazing. Like the view sounds like spectacular. The Maester's Tower is up there. So is the Rookery where all the ravens would come. Visenya lived up there during her time. And so did Rhaenyra during, during her time as well. There's also a, the Windworm uh, with a Y, wind, W-Y-R-M, you know, worm. And it's wind a, with an eye. Yeah, worm. wind with an eye, worm with a Y. <laughs> <laughs> the ta- it's another dragon tower. And it's got an open mouth screaming, supposedly screaming defiance, which is odd. Like defiance? Like you guys are like top of the food chain. Who are you defying? Like, <laughs> you know, you guys are like the rulers here. But anyway, it sounds cool though, regardless of my confusion as to why it's designed that way. It That's sounds defiance badass. to the Targaryens. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, nah, stop trying to control. We're dragons. A dragon is no slave. Something like that, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Here is Davos describing some things down below. It was dark, yes. Flickering orange light fell through the ancient iron bars from the torch in the sconce on the wall outside, but the back half of the cell remained drenched in gloom. It was dank as well, as might be expected on an isle such as Dragonstone, where the sea was never far. And there were rats, as many as any dungeon could expect to have, and a few more besides. (laughs) But Davos could not complain of chill. The smooth, stony passages beneath the great mass of Dragonstone were always warm, and Davos had often heard it said that they grew warmer the farther down one went. He was well below the castle, he judged, and the wall of his cell often felt warm to his touch when he pressed a palm against it. Perhaps the old tales were true and Dragonstone was built with the stones of hell. Well, that doesn't really take away at all from our this place is creepy vibe when Davos says it's built with the stones of hell. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the night fort where it's like this, this, this place is evil, man. You know, it's not as bad as the night fort, but it's, it's, it's up there. It's on the list. It makes the short list of creepy castles that it doesn't have the like, the horror stories that the Night Fort had, but it's, it's probably some pretty bad things happen here that no one heard about. Doesn't have the story horrors, story horror, <laughs> horror stories that we know of. Yeah, yeah. And part of it, not hear them. and it's had less time to generate them, right? Like 600 years, like if this place had been around thousands of years, there would have been some, some legends probably. Like the stories like the rat cook and the thing that came in the night, those are thousands of year old legends, right? So that's part of it. Part of this thing makes those legends so powerful is how long they've been around. Nina makes another great connection here. Another One of the many things that gives Winterfell vibes with Dragonstone is 
the crypts. We haven't seen the crypts of Dragonstone, but they are a thing. Targaryens are burned and their ashes are interred on Dragonstone. Most of the Targaryens that we hear of are interred there, including Jaehaerys, Arya, Aegon, the Conqueror, so many others, Alysanne, just Daenerys could go down there and she'll want to. Like, I can't imagine that she won't want to pay respects to her family, to see, to make some sort of emotional connection to this family that she's so distant from. She will then perhaps encounter the crypt of her namesake, baby Daenerys, who died of the shivers, a, a slump, some possibly magical cold disease, which that gives you some vibes. <laughs> like Daenerys dying to the shivers. Yikes, right? <laughs> so that could be like a real momentous event for Daenerys to see that, maybe read some Valyrian runes or figure out what happened there and a flood of emotions about her family and how some of them were like her, even they had her name and just all sorts of possibilities that could be really provocative from a personal standpoint, as well as delving into Targaryen lore. She may see some names and be, and it'll trigger stories in her mind that Viserys told her that maybe she read in a book because she has been given some books and uh, she didn't read them a lot, but she did read them. So, yeah. If we do see that moment and there's an attempt to create a parallel between Robert and Ned going to the crypts of Winterfell, who do you think would go with, Danny? Tyrion. (laughs) Someone that would know a lot. Someone would be able to tell her things and answer questions and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Tyrion seems like by far the most likely. It could be someone like Makoro. Because then if Makoro oh, is where, because yeah. Melisandre takes Stannis down there, not to the crypts, but to the secret places below Dragonstone, into the volcano, things like that. So that would be yet another parallel. Presumably Aegon would have gone down there with, if not both his sisters, Visenya maybe was the more like magically inclined, the more severe, the more the older one too. So she would have maybe been more privy to the family secrets. Imagine like it's a D&D party. Danny <laughs> yeah. and Tyrion and Davos and Melisandre and... They get all their different perspectives. and It's also possible the other Daenerys, the, the, the one who lived in Dorne, who went to live to the Water Gardens, it's possible her ashes were interred in dragons. I, I would guess they were interred in, at Sunspear or at the Water Garden, somewhere in, in Dorne. But it's possible her ashes were returned to Dragonstone when she passed. That is definitely on the list of not unlikely possibilities. So it's really neat. She would be, that scene, I really want to see that scene. It hadn't really occurred to me as recently as two years ago, I'd never thought about this, but only recently, relatively recently in, in my Song of Ice and Fire lifetime has this idea of Danny having a crypt scene like like you said, like Robert and Ned could be extremely meaningful, especially because they talked about Rhaegar, <laughs> you know, and it's Lyanna, but Rhaegar would be more relevant to this point because that's Danny's brother. Rhaegar's body. It, it's also there. It's also was burned and interred yeah. to Dragonstone. Yeah. I, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Yeah, it definitely was burned, and pretty sure even Robert allowed that. Yeah, to that happen. was polite of him. Yeah, yeah. I, even Robert, it's like, all right, it's just a body. I don't care. <laughs> they may not have asked permission. They may have just done it. Be like, all right, he, he's not gonna, he's not gonna care. Let's just do this. <laughs> the volcano. Let's talk briefly about the volcano that sits on Dragonstone. It's called the Dragonmont. It's what the castle is built into. Here's a one-liner to get us started. The Conqueror was once heard to say that he even loved the scent of Dragonstone, where the salt air always smelled of smoke and brimstone. Most people don't like that smell. 
it's, it's, it comes out that like he's a little unusual. Like maybe it's because he's a little dragony himself. Targaryens have a little dragon in them, or he's just used to it. It reminds him of home. Reminds him of isolation. Not really clear. Aegon the Conqueror's personality not well known. He was a very private person. Probably a bit of a story device on George's part to give himself room to work with later. But either way, it's interesting. So the volcano itself formed the islands. Of course, as we talked about in past episodes, most of the Earth's surface is formed by volcanoes. So that is not terribly unsurprising. Or not terribly surprising, rather. The steam emanates from vents. Smoke emanates from the peak. The caves that have formed over the eons through lava flow and water, the spray of the ocean, things like that, have housed many dragons over the years. Occasionally a person, once or twice maybe, both a dragon and a person at the same time. (laughs) It's got rich deposits of dragon glass. And though there are surely some arcane secrets, it, it probably doesn't have like the cave drawings like the show had, but it might have stuff. It might have secrets down there, different style, not the children of the forest. Children of the Forest probably weren't ever on Dragonstone. It's not like this is the only source of obsidian, but there's other places you can find, but it is a great source of obsidian. So there's another factor that probably makes Dragonstone relevant going forward is that it's this amazing source of Dragonstone, of which, I mean, of, of dragon glass, which Stannis got a lot of before he left. Let's not forget. He, he harvested quite a bit before, before leaving. But that also symbolically really places it in opposition to the others. You've got dragons, you've got volcanoes, you've got dragon glass, you've got isolation over the water, you've got a foreign people that didn't emanate in Westeros, uh, the Targaryens, the Valyrians as well. So it's all these things that are like fire versus ice, volcano versus snow and winter, you know, summer heat versus cold, all these things, dragon glass versus, well, they're destroyed by it. <laughs> the opposite reverses ice whites. I don't know. <laughs> but they clearly don't get along. So Tundra versus Island. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's all these just both straightforward and sort of symbolic opposites. And that's pretty cool. Nina says, I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the major resources found in abundance on Dragonstone is Obsidian. Yeah, that may be why Melisandre associates Dragonstone with the place, with the place the prince was promised, and with this idea that the being to fight the others will emanate from here, that it's like the heart and home of of this resistance against winter, it feels right, you know. So you, you, if she sees it in her visions, if she's seeing Danny, but she thinks it's Stannis, well, that you can see why she made that mistake because so many boxes that Stannis checks off that we went over already. Stannis, Aegon, Danny—they have all these things in common. Plenty of castles are built into a mountain or a hill or on top of it or part of it, but in a volcano. I don't, I don't, I think it's the only one we know of, besides maybe in Valyria before the Doom. There was probably some of those then. So, this is getting into the whole technology thing. Like, this is something they learned how to do. And it may not be entirely magical, although it's at least partially magical. Can't be repeated now, then, I guess. I guess someone, there isn't the ability to redo this. No one currently in the world could make a new Dragonstone or any castle in a volcano that we know of. And would you want to, if you could? (laughs) Would you want to? I don't know. It's very much outside my knowledge base. What do you think, Sean? Would you build a castle in a volcano if you could? Or would you just be like, why? I think I would. I think, like I was saying earlier, you could harvest the energy. Yeah. The thermal energy has got to be some value to that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. You wonder if there's any, like, toxic... Is it? Would you make be sick living there? Is that 
The Targaryens are known to be Well, like I could say, more... for example, that like in Hawaii, where there's volcanoes on the island, you deal with what they call vog, volcanic fog. Mm. It's just like the slang for it. And no, yes, absolutely. It's just kind of, like people wear masks there to protect themselves mm. from this like toxic volcanic ash being spewed. So uh, we used masks in Hawaii long before COVID stuff for just regular. Pollution. That said, it's not like everyone in Hawaii dies from cancer or something, right? It's no. just a thriving culture and yeah. economy and peoples have been there for hundreds of thousands of No, but there are theoretically or... people who have were, have lung problems because of yeah, growing up yeah. nearer to it or, or what. Yeah, like living near mold can cause. Yeah. yeah, just like living near dampness. Yeah, there's certain certain environmental factors can cause shortener, shorter lifespans. Targaryens, though, that's where we bring up the fact that Targaryens have additional disease resistance. It's well documented that they don't acquire a lot of the common illnesses, which is why Daener- that one Daenerys dying of the shivers was very noteworthy because it was, it was like, what? That, like they don't get floody flux. They don't get a whole bunch of gross sounding Westerosi diseases. So it's notable that the second a new house takes over at Dragonstone, the Baratheons, Stannis gets as the first non-Targaryen to rule Dragonstone. His daughter gets sick of grayscale. Mm. Like maybe if she was Targaryen, I mean, and she's part Targaryen, to be clear. So there's a little of that in there. But if they were, if she was full Targaryen, maybe she would have resisted grayscale. Maybe she would have, I mean, now Targaryens definitely can get grayscale. I mean, it was, it was, it was launched at the Targaryens initially by Garen the Great. So it's a magical disease. Magical diseases don't necessarily work the same way. But that said, it's not like their immunity completely fails. So it's like we haven't seen a Targaryen with grayscale in quite a while. So, or at all. We haven't, we've only heard of that happening back in the day. So there's definitely room here for that to be a thing. Like the Targaryens were able to live there a little more healthily because of their own immune systems were stronger. But now that you're moving into more regular humans, the, the environmental concerns are starting to seep into the... I would like to know what's happening to the regular folk. You know, we don't have a lot of accounts from like the commoners. Like, is it bad? Do you get healthy? Are there, are there health problems here that don't exist elsewhere? What were you going to say? I had a thought. I've had this thought a few times and I, I never remember it at the right moment or whatever. But a lot of times I feel like we feel the need to clarify, well, they do have Targaryen blood, right? We're just trying to be technically accurate. Yeah. But I don't feel like Martin is like driving that point home to make sure everyone knows Baratheons actually have Targaryen blood. It's yeah. something that deep people doing podcasts about it happen to know is true. But I don't think it's like a literary device that Martin is relying on. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. It's not, you're right. It's not highlighted. It was like an obscure thing that put them in front along with Robert's leadership. But yeah, not, it's not super relevant. You're right. Fun for sure. So the passages, the down, the tunnels below. This is super interesting to me. Beside the crypts, which are down there somewhere. And we've said there's no evidence of children in the forest here. There are definitely deep caves. Melisandre has been down there. She takes Stannis down there. Since we won't get a Stannis chapter, we won't get it from his memory. But maybe he, maybe something comes up and he has a reason to discuss it, to mention what he saw down there. Maybe he's like, yeah, when I was down there, I saw this, I saw that. Melisandre showed me this. I had a vision. Like, we're talking about fire magic and reading the visions of the flames. Does the quality of the fire have something to do with that? Is the volcanic magic, is it stronger? Just the fl- that flame reading's really good down there, man. It's some of the best flames for reading, you know. <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be. That's just a, it's just a guess, but it's it's a maybe maybe on solid ground as far as guesses. Now, here's what Salador San says about those tunnels to Davos. Interesting one here. Queer talking, I have heard. 
of hungry fires within the mountain and how Stannis and the Red Woman go down together to watch the flames. There are shafts, they say, and secret stairs down into the mountain's heart, into hot places where only she may walk unburned. It is enough and more to give an old man such terrors that sometimes he can scarcely find the strength to eat. Well, who else is able to withstand heat a little more than other people? I'm not talking about surviving in a pyre, but she did do that. But Daenerys and the Targaryens have greater heat tolerance. Maybe not as to this level that's being described here, but later on in the episode, we're going to hear mentions of how, oh yeah, we searched Dragonstone. We searched it thoroughly. Did you though? <laughs> Did you go in the places that only she can walk unburned? No, you didn't. <laughs> so Did they even find the secret stairs? Exactly. No. Yeah, like no, I don't think so. Yeah, there's a quote we have later that that summarizes the, the no, you didn't pretty pretty darn well, but I saved it for the end. So yeah, Danny or Tyrion seeing some of the stuff through their POV, like very strong possibility. Again, Crypts of Winterfell comes to mind as something could happen. I don't think there's going to be like fire demons arising. Like there is a theory that there will be crypts will something will rise in the Crypts of Winterfell. Still, mysteries arising, secrets arising. That's a big deal. Artifacts, lore, you know, who knows? Just hidden secrets could be down there. There could be a book hidden somewhere. Like what happened to Danny's the Dreamer's book, Signs and Portents? It was lost. When was it lost? We don't know. Is that in there somewhere? Was it destroyed? Was, did Daylor the Blessed just have it burned? Maybe. It could just be gone. But well, there's a lot of more eggs could be found down there. You know, maybe just some Valyrian steel. You know, who knows? There's just, I couldn't possibly name all the possible things that might be down there. <laughs> some lit glass candles, maybe. Ooh, yeah. I mean, good. See, like, I didn't even think of that one. And that's a totally valid possibility. So, and there's so many people that have had like dreams of the place in the path who they've written their dreams on. Danny's the Dreamer is just one, maybe the most prolific, but other people have had dreams. Danny's had dreams. What else? So Nina suggests another option here. She says it's also possible, possible that Melisandre uses these passages as part of her showmanship tools to portray herself as that much more supernaturally powerful. If you watch someone walk into a place that's too hot, that does sell what you're trying to sell, that you're powerful. You have magic. And yeah. Yeah, it's the exact inverse of her up in uh, the north, the wall, when you see her walking around and she's just like not cold. Yeah. Like, you're like, Whoa. oh, what a proof of her power. So does that the same thing right here. Showing off a little. It has its uses. Yeah. I wonder if that's another example of arcane arts that Ooh. the Targaryens had. I wonder if that's something else that they just could walk down into the lava and scoop it out or clear a path or whatever it was that would have seen magical and mystical, but gave them access to resources that otherwise couldn't be gotten. And if I was a Targaryen, I would engineer it, if possible, to make it just at that level where they can handle it where a normal human can't. So it's just in that mm -hmm. zone where like they can survive it, but a regular person can't. Like three degrees hotter, five degrees hotter, you know, not, not absurd, but like they can tolerate it, but a regular person would be like, ah, oh, fucking my hair's burning off, my yeah, I can't take it. <laughs> it. It might even be a little uncomfortable for them, but they can just act tough. Yeah. And seem like they can just do anything where other people oh, couldn't even approach that at all. And so really the difference is only a few degrees, like you said, but they can make it seem much greater. Yeah, yeah. And like Melisandre, that's, that's what Nina's getting at. Like Melisandre, she can make, like she can play it up. And be like, oh, like only I can, like this heat is, 
it's intense, but I can handle it, you know? And it's like, maybe it's not that intense for her, but she, she's playing it off to make it look, or maybe, maybe it makes it look like it's nothing. She's like, what, is this hot to you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. Ah, it's just a little above, a little above average temperature, but I hardly notice at all. Mm. And in in the north, Melisandre in, internally, she might be like, "Yeah, my fingers are freaking freezing." <laughs> <laughs> so here's another quote about the. We're talking just before the era of the Doom, where the before the Targaryens took it. Here's a quote. And although the sight of a dragon lord flying high above Blackwater Bay was not unknown. It occurred more frequently as time passed. Valyria felt that its outpost was secured and the dragon lords thus continued their schemes and intrigues on their native continent. So here we'll zoom in a little more into this era of Valyrian steel so-called trickling into the Seven Kingdoms. Given we're told that sorcery was used to raise the fortress itself, it makes sense they're associated with Valyrian steel, which also requires sorcery. It could be some of the same specialists that work this sort of thing. The merchants probably didn't own the Valyrian steel themselves. The stuff is, even in Valyria, was rare enough and expensive enough that it was, they're probably brokering it for the rich owners, like an art gallery. Like, an art gallery doesn't usually own all the art that's in it. Uh, It's probably why the dragons would appear from time to time, by the way, to protect this investment. You don't want to have unprotected Valyrian steel out there. You got to guard that, not just guard the steel, but guard the money you get selling it. So, yeah. And especially the ships. If you're going ship to ship, you got Valyrian steel on that ship. You don't want pirates coming up. A dragon guarding that ship, flying above it. No pirates coming anywhere near that. Guarantee you that. And of course, once you get the goods inside Dragonstone, they're safe. Dragonstone, we talked about, very secure on the inside. Obviously, internal threats, someone could make off with it. But no army is like to appear to take it all and seize it, especially if there's dragons around because you're going you're gonna to fail. <laughs> dragons will defeat you, I would think. All right, let's take a little halfway-ish point break here. A couple questions from y'all. A couple from last time, a couple from this time. Once again, remind y'all to check out our Dragon's Den video from San Diego Comic-Con. It's up on YouTube. You can also find it on by going to Facebook, Twitter, Patreon, or Discord, where we have links up. Yeah, in it, we go through the Red Keep and through a part of Dragonstone, apparently. Yeah. We traveled awfully quickly between the two mm-hmm. locations. Matthew Witham sends a super chat and says, thanks for all the content over the years. We appreciate the support and we will keep it coming. Definitely. The years will pile on to more years. <laughs> Guilty Undertaker says, do we know when the Targaryens stopped holding slaves? Anar brought slaves with him to Dragonstone. But by the time of the conquest, they seem to have abandoned the practice. Great question. Yes, it specifically says that Anar brought his dragons, his wealth, his siblings, his family, his slaves, his blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It does say that. We do not know when they abandoned it. I imagine it was after the time of Game and the Glorious. Game and the Glorious was the son of Anar and married to his sister, his own sister, Anar's daughter, Danis the Dreamer. So they were the Lord and Lady of Dragonstone in that era. Gaiman was the most powerful Lord of Dragonstone prior to the conquest. I'm guessing he didn't get there by giving up slaves. Probably not. It probably came after him. But there weren't that many Targaryens that ruled Dragonstone before Aegon. There's no indication Aegon's time they still had slaves. And if Aegon was trying to adopt more Westerosi customs, he would have ended it if, if they hadn't ended it already. But I'm guessing it ended after the time of Game and the Glorious, but before the time of Aegon's father, Arion. Sometime in between, which would have been, there was another Aegon 
And then there was a Magon, I think, <laughs> as well as some others. So probably in that range. Will Moss says, I forget what this was in reference to. I think maybe you said Neanderthal was a catch-all phrase, Sean. Maybe you didn't mean to, or maybe not. I'm not sure. Anyway. I tried to clarify that it wasn't, if I remember correctly. Okay. And that's what Will was. Yeah. Hominids or yeah. homo. I can't remember the, exact, the Latin naming or whatever, but yeah. Reg- so I, it often gets used that way. Yeah. And when Martin was writing, it would have been thought of as that way. But Okay, so that's what you were trying to say. I think that maybe wasn't clear because Will, Will Moss, frequent commenter, says Neanderthal is specific, homo neanderthalensis. But I think, yeah, I think that just maybe didn't, didn't come out right when you were saying it. So yes, you were saying that Neanderthal is not a catch-all, but people do use it that way. Good point. That's true. Less so now than before, but even now. Yeah. I mean, in the last three years, they've discovered new stuff yeah. about like the, the different branches and timelines and locations of early Homo sapien-like species. So, And as we maybe pointed out at the time, and bears repeating, the even human and Neanderthal interbreeding was less understood when George created the Ebenese. So... Like you said, that's also, even within the last several years, has been huge leaps in understanding there. I, I forgot to put this in a document, but I did want to point out something from the chat last week sure. that Christina and Curtis were having a discussion. I don't know, Curtis was posing the idea that evolution isn't just like a biological thing. As a concept, it can be applied to know, computer programming or internet memes or, you know, all, all sorts of things, yeah. you know, that, that it's, we think of it as this evolutionary dynamic and, and even to think of it as being almost synonymous with survival of the fittest. But survival of the fittest is just one aspect of evolution. Evolution is much more broad than just a biological thing. But it, it, this is a very difficult, deep discussion that yeah. couldn't go through in a chat. And so he t- typed out like 20 dense paragraphs in the comments discussing this. If you're into that kind of thing, it was very insightful. Right on. Good job, Curtis. Thanks for that, Sean. Let's move on to the next era when Dragonstone is claimed by the Targaryens. Here's another quote. Dragonstone had been the westernmost outpost of Valyria power for two centuries. Its location athwart the Gullet gave its lords a stranglehold on Blackwater Bay and enabled both the Targaryens and their close allies, the Valerians, Driftmark, a lesser house of Valyrian descent, to fill their coffers of passing trade. Valerian ships, along with those of other allied Valerian house, the Celticars of Claw Isle, dominated the middle reaches of the Narrow Sea, whilst the Targaryens ruled the skies with their dragons. So it's a very complimentary scenario there. You got ships to collect the tolls and do a lot of the cordoning and, and other trading of their own, and the, the dragons just back it all up to be sure no one messes with them. And for that, they had a good setup. I mean, they were, they were making bank getting taxes, doing their own trade. And, and, and they're the, of all the houses in Westeros, they're one of the ones you would least want to mess with. I, I would say in addition to the ships and the dragons, but Dragonstone itself, that yeah. was another piece of that puzzle. They need like a home base, a resupply point, et cetera. True so. that. And it's a very excellent spot for such business. And we don't really know much about them though. We don't know who these folks were. We know the Valyrian steel was trickling in. We don't know what connection they had to the Targaryens. Is it, is it some sort of Valyrian thing that all dragon lords just have certain rights? I mean, you can see them. They made the government. And they could write whatever laws they want, and no one's going to stop them. That's how a lot of governments work. If you know you don't have consensus, if, you, if then the really powerful people make all the rules. And in the case of the dragon lords, there's rarely been such a concentration of power at the top. And the rules are probably very, 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 very balanced towards them. <laughs> Not balanced at all, in other words. 
sometimes even when you do have consensus, the very powerful people still make the rules. True. Yes. <laughs> it's all the more important to... <laughs> yeah. So the Targaryens... Another was what I'm getting at is when the Aenar the Exile shows up on Dragonstone and takes over, like, what was the mechanism there? Because, again, I could see it just being like, okay, you have dragons. Here you go, sir. This is yours now. But it could have been legal, right? It could have been like, this is ours because of... Article 17, you know, <laughs> when a dragon lord does this and that, all castles shall belong like we, yeah, I don't know, like this is all very obscure, but it's definitely something that's a little puzzling that there seems to have been no, nothing written about this transfer. They just, they just took it. <laughs> I wonder, I, I sort of suppose that it might not have been particularly valuable until the Targaryens took it over. Yeah, like it might have not had good ports and that's not true. had good farmland. But along with building that, you know, citadel, they might have also cleared out a port and leveled some land for farm. They might have cultivated it in more ways than just build this castle. They might have yeah. made it a valuable home. That's true. Like the castle was there, but was it like a lot of castles? Was it added on to substantially or was it mostly done by the time the Targaryens claimed it? unclear. For all we know, they owned it already. It was there. Like, they literally owned it. Like, the Targaryens were the owners of Dragonstone prior. Like, you'd think that would have been mentioned, so probably not, but that would certainly explain how they just walked right in and said, this is ours now. <laughs> it, also, by the way, imagine if it was an active volcano that people stayed away from, but they mm. sealed it up somehow. I don't know. But. Yeah. So, definitely an open question. Maybe something that we'll learn about later. A couple of other features that were added later. There's, of course, Aegon's Garden, which is interesting that it's called Aegon's Garden. Did he build it also? Was it not there? Well, did Aenar not build it? Or his father, like, Aegon was the first one to build this? It's, it's, it's a really interesting sounding spot. It's kind of like a godswood, but it doesn't have like a central object of worship in it. It's just a neat, like, flowery place within this volcanic region. Tall, dark trees, wild roses, cranberries. So you can, if you need a snack while you're walking around towering thorny hedges watch out for that so it would be interesting to, way, it would be interesting to learn if it was the other Aegon like one of his uh, grandparents Aegon that built it not him <laughs> thorny hedges and roses also have thorns I wonder if this was meant to be a place uh, to stay out of okay. or be careful or you had to know the right path through or yeah something. maybe good call good call and of course one thing that he definitely built was the chamber of the painted table built in the stone he also died in that room he had a stroke while showing his grandkids pointing at the painted table like I'm doing this. It was a little bit vaguely like the Godfather when Corleone is showing his grand, talking to his grandchildren playing in the, in the garden and he just dies. Similar. <laughs> I wonder if Martin was thinking about that. And then the Targaryen kings comparing them to mafia bosses it makes a little sense. You can see some of that. They're not, they're not quite that bad, but... <laughs> So let's hear the description of the painted table itself because it's really cool. Can't wait to see it on screen again in, in a variety of ways. It's one of the coolest inventions of George's mind in terms of structures. And let's talk about it. The painted table was more than 50 feet long, perhaps half that wide at its widest point, but less than four feet across at its narrowest. Aegon's carpenters had shaped it after the land of Westeros, sawing out each bay and peninsula until the table nowhere ran straight. On its surface, darkened by near 300 years of varnish, were painted the Seven Kingdoms as they had been in Aegon's day. 
rivers and mountains, castles and cities, lakes and forests. There was a single chair in the room, carefully positioned in the precise place that Dragonstone occupied off the coast of Westeros and raised up to give a good view of the tabletop. Everyone needs one of these in their house. Every fan of a song of fire. 50 feet long. Huh? <laughs> That's <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, I'm very excited. Our new intro video for our House Dragon coverage is going to have a replica of the painted table that Brandon Winslow has made. So it looks really cool. Awesome. Yeah, I wonder if it's, it's mentioned in this quote that it's changed a bit over 300 years of varnish and just existing. It's wood. So you wonder if it'll look a little different on TV than it looked we know years it, later. Yeah, well, we know in, in the TV show canon, whether this is true in the book canon, we don't know. But in TV show canon, definitively, the painted table of House of the Dragon looks very different to the painted table of Game of Thrones. Yeah, just from the trailers, you can tell that much. You're right, yeah. It looks fantastic. It's quite a symbol, right? It's the ultimate symbol of conquest, of domination, of authority. Of It reminds me a little bit of Bran, the beginning of his chapters where he's high up in a tower looking down on Winterfell, seeing different people doing little jobs here and there, like different how the realm is running from a different, it's like his bird's eye view. This is more of a dragon's eye view of it and kind of looking down on the world and just seeing it all. And yeah. You know, I, I didn't even think of that until just now. Once again, something I feel like should have occurred to me before. But what, on many levels, a huge advantage the Targaryens would have knowing what the map should look like. Mm. Being able to fly up above and look down and see where the creek came out of the river, how long the road was, where the beachhead turned. Like their maps would just be better than anyone else. Right. They would have a much better perspective of the terrain of the world around them. It's very true. When it came to setting up trade routes or battle plans or anything else, it's a huge, huge advantage. This brings us... And value to the world. This yeah. makes me think of a Guilty Undertaker said, did Aegon send surveyors out to get the precise lay of the land? And really, he would have had the best luck, I think, sending dragon surveyors yeah, He would have out. been the best exactly. surveyor, him and his sisters, yeah. yeah. It's not like he could just send someone else on Balerion to do that. Be like, yeah, go take the dragon out for a spin. Give me some, give me some topographical images. <laughs> It'd be a fun little spin-off story or the, the, the Targaryen cartographer yeah. constantly like, all right, get, get in a dragon. Oh, not again. <laughs> yeah, that's an bring, un- your, bring your pen and paper. We're going to map this out. It's an underrated factor that maps really weren't that big a part of ancient battles for the most part. Even in medieval times, there weren't a lot of maps. They just knew the land. You just knew things or you had scouts to check. And yeah, like it's almost universally a misnomer or an anachronism when you see maps in TV shows and period pieces. Unless it's modern, they probably didn't have a map. <laughs> I mean, like even, even in like they 1700s, did. they didn't have a lot of maps. Yeah, even if they did, it wouldn't be very accurate. Yeah, that too. Which is part of why they didn't bother with them because a lot of them just weren't useful. They were like, well, yeah, this I isn't... Guess- we don't want to rely on this thing that's probably not that accurate. Yeah, I guess if I were to say what I thought happened, I would say people in the chat, Nagina and Ken, other people brought up the idea that Maesters would have already maybe had excellent maps that would be copied. And I guess my my idea would be that they took a map that already existed of Westeros, that, that did exist, but made it more accurate. Yeah, improved on it. Yeah, start with the basics. Yeah, because yeah. some of those original maps may have come from like skin changer bird's eye views too, oh, right? Yeah, if we're that's really, a good point. you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. And those could have been the way North older. I have better maps in general. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, like crows and ravens, whatever. Yeah. Even in relatively modern times, I want to say like the 1800s. That maps were still very, very inaccurate. Never mind, I don't know, like social or cultural 
attempts to make like, you know, your hometown look bigger on a map or something. But when they went out with tools, with knowledge of like trigonometry and, you know, measuring devices, trying to like divide the state borders, Mm. for example, Mm. they're very jagged and crooked because it just wasn't perfect map. It wasn't perfect uh, math or instruments. They, they, you know, when you go, you know, way up above to get the whole world, you just look like you have this straight line across Nebraska or Texas or whatever. But if you go down to the actual ground, it is not a straight line. The borders <laughs> of the states are very crooked and random mm. because they didn't have good tools when they first mapped it out. Oh, that's and I'm point. sure that would be true when you go farther back in time. Yeah. Unless you have dragons. Unless yeah. you have the ability to get up above and know for sure. Or in some cases, it's easy, I suppose, like rivers and islands right, have right. distinct borders. But you're right. Like when it's a land border, a lot of times when there isn't a distinct geographical feature, then you're like, hmm. And rivers move over time. Like things like that happen too. Yeah, so like that's true, a whole yeah. nother wrinkle. We don't need to get into that right now, but I have an open question. I want everyone to think about this. It's not something that requires an answer because it's just a prediction. Will the painted table be destroyed? Will it linger? Will it last after the series? I don't think there's, there's not an explicit reason for it to be destroyed, but symbolically, if Westeros is, is, is no longer united or if the need for it, if there's a misunderstanding, if it's seen as a symbol of conquest or authority, it might be, it might be time to do away with it. I like the idea it's a symbol of unity. It is because it has no borders painted on it. That's an explicit feature of it. There's no borders. Nina points out how important that is from the perspective of the others. They don't see the borders. They don't care about the borders. They're invading. It's humanity they're coming for. They don't care about the north versus the reach. They want humanity, right? Wherever they are, (laughs) whether they're in the north, the south, whatever. So that's another interesting view when we're looking at it from the Stannis Aegon saving the realm or for good or worse, like whether they're actually the right person to do it is another question. But from that attitude of, I need to save the realm, viewing it as one, because that's how the enemy views it as well. There's a lot of value in seeing it that way, and and both symbolically and strategically. You know, symbolically, it's hard for me to not believe that at least on some subconscious level, if not a very active level, George means for the others to represent some sort of environmental threat. Yeah. Climate change doesn't care about borders either. True that. True that. Now, other now, Dragonstone is probably unassailable directly by the others. Just as an aside, I don't know that uh, even we have heard about the seas freezing, but not that much. And that was way in the north that, that happened. So, doubt the Blackwater Bay would freeze over. Doubt the others could get there. And I don't know if they'd want to go there, given it's the island full of dragon glass and volcanoes. Like, what are they? Like, yeah, maybe we'll just bypass that one. They can, they can, humans could keep that one. <laughs> But, it's hard to imagine it getting dire, but that would be a safe hold if humanity was being overrun by the others. Everyone get the dragons. Yeah, soon, like Winterfell would be that kind of refuge in the north. This one would be much more refugee since it's farther in the south and on an island. But still, yeah, it's the same kind of presentation. So there's a sept on Dragonstone. Anar the Exile took the masts from the ships that carried them from Valyria and had them carved to the aspects of the seven. At least we think it was Anar who did that because we know it was the ships that brought them over that that was, was done with. It's possible a later Targaryen lord did that, but that gets into, well, were they, did they still have those ships? It seems like there was something that was done early on, but no guarantee, which is interesting because if Aenar was immediately adopting Westerosi beliefs, immediately taking on the Seven, then maybe they did get rid of slavery pretty quickly as part of that because Seven don't allow slavery. Melisandre and Stannis burned those, <laughs> those me- former masts turned gods, though, unfortunately. Boo. George did confirm that Aegon 
converted to the seven as a political maneuver. So it is odd that Anar did this or anyone besides Aegon did this. So which is why partly it's a mystery. Maybe he had reverence for the local gods or wanted to have some reverence for them, but wasn't going to fully buy in just like a Victorian thing. Like, yeah, all the gods. Let's give a little of them, a little of him. All the gods get their due. Yeah, that sort of thing. So uh, without knowing Anar, it's hard to know. But Anar did believe his daughter's visions of the doom. So this is a guy that maybe took signs and portents and the gods maybe more seriously than, than most. Anar was a real, like, I'm playing both sides, so I always come out on top <laughs> <laughs> kind of guy. And he always made sure to tell both sides yeah. he was playing both sides because that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> He's a very savvy intriguer there. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit of a mystery there is, is this whole conversion and end of slavery and when did they adopt the seven? Was it a full adoption or just, it sounds like it wasn't because of Aegon wasn't fully sevenized until he converted during the conquest. So yeah, bit of a mystery there. But the other question I have about it is that there's, there would have been marriages done in this sept. Any marriage performed under the auspices of the seven would be done in this sept. Now, of course, I don't know what they're going to do now that the sept was burned, but they could just build a new one. It's not that big a deal, I guess. Magor the Cruel married his second wife on Dragonstone, not under the auspices of the Seven, because the Seven doesn't allow polygamous marriages. It was done in a Valyrian ceremony, which probably means it wasn't done in that room where the Seven have their, had their carvings. So where was it done? Somewhere in the volcano? Some hidden place? Some, they have a Valyrian chapel somewhere in Dragonstone? I don't know. But it had to be somewhere. And you don't, when you have a king getting married, you usually have a, you don't just do that anywhere, you know, unless you're eloping like Rhaegar and Lyanna, you know, still. And even they might have gone somewhere fancy like the Isle of Faces. So I doubt they just did it in a hallway. So they probably had some cool room in Dragonstone that was used for that. But by the time of Magor, this is when the Targaryen started to use Dragonstone less and less. So it's a kind of a new era around this time when the Red Keep was finished, when King's Landing was starting to bustle and become a major center of trade and activity and where the kings would interact with their subjects, where they'd hear petitions and all that stuff. So less and less of the Red, of, the, of Dragonstone, more and more of the Red Keep. In addition, more and more dragons started living at the Red Keep while many still lived on Dragonstone. Magor started building the Dragon Pit, so that continued to be a split. That split also probably helped fuel the Dance of the Dragons, this two having things at two different locations with two different factions in charge and all that. But quite a lot of the dragon infrastructure at Dragonstone would have been built in this prior era and ongoing until they ran out of dragons. What I mean is that they wouldn't have had much reason to have done that when it was just Valyrian traders before there were dragon lords there. And what I mean by infrastructure is we're told that there were quote, pits of dragonstone where eggs were hatched or stored in, incubating, for lack of a better... Actually, it's probably the perfect term. Uh, but what else do they have? This, these are the kind of things that the show is going to have to give us some detail, and House of the Dragon is going to have to present some of this. And that'll give us new ideas. And George, since George hasn't given us a lot, well, that's where we're at. We're mostly using our imagination for what kind of caves and the pits and the whatever else they had for... 
A wedding chapel. Yeah, that too. Exactly. All these things that we just haven't seen that are probably going to appear at some point. Or... Yeah, I thought it was really interesting in our Dragon's Den experience. When we, when we went through Dragonstone, they took us to like the volcanic guys. They, they called them geysers in the caves. And that's where like we were putting our eggs to hatch them. And so I just thought that was interesting idea that like Targaryens went down into like the caves of Dragonstone mm. to the geysers. Whether yeah. that's like re- accurately reflecting something we'll see on the show or not. Maybe be a little safer for them. It'd be too perilous for non-Targaryens. Nina says, I also wonder how this might have changed in the last few decades of dragon existence. Obviously, at some point, these, quote, last two hatchlings born on Dragonstone had to have been bred and hatched. And there may have even been more shorter-lived dragons that born and died in the roughly two decades between Aegon III, known as Aegon the Dragonbane or Aegon the Unlucky, who, between his ascension and the last dragon dying in 153, Roughly 22-year period there where the dragons were dying out and they were smaller, they were stunted, there weren't big ones grown. And then after that, there weren't anyone hatching at all until, until Daenerys. So what were they doing on Dragonstone? Were there tools? Were there methods that, that made it work better there? Because as we saw, seen, the dragons are bigger on Dragonstone. There's certainly the volcano. It could just be the heat and, and that. It's simple volcano. as that. It might just be that simple. Yeah. There may not be any magic behind it. They just... Give a fish in your aquarium enough a bigger tank and they'll grow larger. I mean, some of this is as basic as it gets it, for animals, you know? <laughs> it seems like someone somewhere would have theorized or just accidentally one dragon left on Dragonstone would have stayed healthy or whatever. It's, it's weird to me that no one figured it out, if that is the case. Well, the thing is, the Dragon Pit era was so short. The patterns didn't, maybe didn't, like the Dragon Pit... There wasn't enough time to piece it together. Yeah. Or, the dragon pit only stood for like 80 years. Like that's not even the lifespan of, a, of a, an adult dragon. Like like Valerian lived almost 200 years. Vagar lived almost 200 years. So yeah, it, it, the patterns would take a really long time to really like, you know, because you might just like occasionally have yeah. outliers. Well, this dragon was just larger. You know, maybe that wasn't necessarily because of the pit. Might have been yeah. even bigger though if it had grown on dragons. You know, it's just... Not enough time or big enough sample size. So. And some of them grew, lived in both. Like Balerion grew up on Dragonstone and then spent a lot of time in the Dragon Pit. Yeah. So same with Vagar. Like it's hard to... And some of them spent... There were other places they spent too, like Driftmark and... Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's very hard to like have untainted data on this, right? There's, there's too many, And there's just not that many dragons total either. All that said, it's, there's a lot of room for them to play around with it. One thing we heard about the TV show is that they really wanted to make the dragons unique looking. You haven't... At this point, again, it's July 31st, 2022, to remind you all, the trailers haven't shown us that many of the dragons, but it's going to be like 17 of them. And maybe not all in season one. But some of them are going to have really unusual features. Like one of them, they said it was going to be like bearded. <laughs> you know, like a bearded lizard and have different horns and coloring. So we're going to see... A lot of that, but we're also going to see under the radar stuff about where they live and what they eat. And yeah, it's going to be neat. It's going to be neat. And this will help fill out some of the unknown book knowledge that, like Shea said earlier, we'll assume a lot of it is book canon until, unless it conflicts. Book canon always comes first, but if we have neither and we have show canon, that can sometimes help fill in the gaps. That is a neat idea that when you only have three dragons, suits, all right, one's red, one's black, one's green or whatever. But when you have 17 dragons, you need to have some more distinguishing features yeah. than just their colors, which there are all kinds of ways to give them more distinct eyes or teeth or the size of their ears or horns or shape of their jaw. It, it'll be neat to see how they give them 
more distinct. No, I'm not sure how personalities even. I'm not sure how scientific George is being about it because this is also a fairly newish scientific discovery. But I'm sure we all have remembered seeing like dinosaur books from like the 80s or 70s. Maybe even if you weren't born then, you may have seen some of these. And dinosaurs were often portrayed as not very colorful. Modern depictions of dinosaurs are extremely colorful, and that's not just like artistic license. That's what they believe now they look like. And it's really interesting how they figure this out is certain gene markers have like visible shapes, like red coloring has markers that you can tell within the cell, like based on shape and, and other properties. You can say that's, that means red. That means their skin was red or their scales were red. They can actually tell that now based on, and that's new. So I, I doubt George is including that, but it is actually as some real basis, because dinosaurs are one of the closest things we have to dragons, I think, when we're trying to make a real-world comparison. So they probably were. Like, it, it actually isn't, like, fantastical to have them be wild, different colors and all that. So, You know, a couple other things, too, that dinosaurs, this is maybe a little bit more, more basic, if you will, but are very similar to lizards. And often lizards are just brown or green. But sometimes they're bright yellow and green and striped and, you know, different yeah. things. You, there's different varieties and there's... And another sort of like uh, evolutionary dynamic that's being thought about is that everything about them, everything about how we evolve isn't always necessarily a survival, quote-unquote, technique. That, like something that might make you better at hunting or escaping or whatever... Sometimes it has to do with mating. Like a lot of weird bird features actually make it harder for them to fly or capture prey or whatever, but it makes them stand out more to their mates. There are little dances and rituals with like weird plumes or beak shapes and stuff like that that dinosaurs or dragons might also have some unusual coloring or features that are for the sake of mating or attracting mates. That could be I important. like that idea a lot. You're right, because... Certainly, if you watch those nature videos of like the birds of paradise and their dances, they clear out a whole space and it's got to be meticulous yeah. and clean and perfect. And they do their dance, which is very unique and they're singing. Yeah, mating rituals in, the, in, in nature are really fascinating. And why wouldn't dragons have behavior like that too? The only difference would be that they're, their species, they're, with a little bit of magic thrown in, there might be room for some, some even more unusual behavior. This is a good plug for the Dracaris app out on Android and iPhone now. You can look up House of the Dragon Dracarys with emphasis on the AR because it's an augmented reality dragon. It's like a little Tamagotchi mm. dragon that you can pick out your egg and hatch and name and take care of. Aziz has a, a beautiful dragon and my dragon is Sexavera and she's like a purple and pink and I love her dearly. Mine is Severagar and it's, it's blue with green and bronze wings and... As of today, it's a juvenile dragon. You can, it's really fun. You go outside, you can like, you can find wild dragons flying around out in the wild and you want your dragon to, you want to give it different types of food, have it go to different, like go to a body of water, have it go to the grass. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Good times, good times. Okay, a few other, let's talk about some of those hidden secrets we alluded to before. Early, we're talking about, yeah, right. You really searched all Dragonstone, huh? Sure you did. And here's someone agreeing. It's from Kevin's epilogue. Now, remember, Kevin's epilogue in A Dance with Dragons is the setup chapter, the ultimate setup chapter among setup chapters. We've been adamant in our analysis of it that it contains a reference, an additional setup to almost every ongoing plot to date within A Song of Ice and Fire is, is referred to in Kevin's chapter. And so the things that are said are, I think you take them with 
additional weight because it's, it seems from a writing standpoint, George was taking a step back to summarize and kind of piece things together. And it was done in a smooth way. It's a, it's a council meeting where they're discussing all the issues. So they go through them one by one and it makes sense. And then when the meeting ends, Kevin's thinking about other stuff and it goes to the things that they wouldn't be discussing in the plot line. So anyway, with that set up, Mace Tyrell and Kevin Lannister, here we go. No wealth was found on Dragonstone, I promise you. My son's men have searched every inch of that damp and dreary island and turned up not so much a single gemstone or speck of gold, nor any sign of this fabled horde of dragon eggs. Kevin Lannister had seen Dragonstone with his own eyes. He doubted very much that Loras Tyrell had searched every <laughs> inch of that ancient stronghold. The Valerians had raised it, after all. Their works stink of sorcery. Yeah, Kevin, you are correct. <laughs> like, hard to argue with Kevin there. And generally, if you find yourself siding with Mace Tyrell, you should question yourself. So not only are you agreeing with the guy who's probably right, but you're disagreeing with the guy who's probably wrong. <laughs> Although, if I remember right, Kevin played it he played it know, off very, yeah. very tactfully. He's yeah. like, you know, he said something like, well, even if he didn't, I'm sure Stannis got anything it was there. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, Stan- and his mind, yeah. He knows better, but fine. You want to think that? Go ahead and think <laughs> that. <yeah. laughs> so, like, things that I would have thought were on Dragonstone. We mentioned signs and portents. A library. Like, the Valyrians moved, Targaryens moved all their stuff. Right? They brought their household over. That would have included books. They're not just going to give those books to the Citadel. Maybe a couple of them, especially if they have extra copies. But most of that stuff they would have just had. That's their stuff, their special books written in Valyrian script or ancient books from who knows when. Like, these are really rich people. They had good stuff. (laughs) So some of that stuff might still be there. And unknown because people don't understand the value of old books. We readers do. We're like, check that bookshelf. Get on that. Look look in there. Come on. Pull that book open. Damn you. Look it. Get over there. Yeah, so we know there's stuff. Even if signs and portents isn't on the shelf, which it probably isn't, Danny's the dreamer, all her stuff, all her various dreams were written down. Actually, you know, interestingly, signs and portents was written before the doom. So in, in, in retrospect, they were like, okay, so she predicted the doom correctly. All that other stuff she wrote down, we're going to want to pay attention to that, <laughs> right? Like that's proof of concept right there. You want to listen to the person who predicted that apocalypse. Like, yeah, you're going to want to. You're going to want to take that advice. But it's possible the original copy is on Dragonstone somewhere. Marwyn the Mage claims to have found three pages of it. Roderick the Reader is the one who tells us that when he's talking to Asha, because Roderick the Reader, what? Of course, that guy knows a thing or two about books. Would it have been destroyed, like I said, by Baylor? Would it have been moved to the Red Keep? Is that the book that Rhaegar opened and said, it seems I must be a warrior? Is that the book Ares the First found? Not Ares the Mad King, Ares the First during the time of Egg and Dunk. Did he, he's the one who found a book that said the dragons will return again and told his family about it. Why would signs and portents have been lost? Other than Baylor the Blessed burning it, it's the only thing I can think of. And if Baylor burned it, that would have been in the 160s. That means it was around for quite a while before, like after Aegon. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you think that someone hid it? or I mean, it's a possibility. Okay. I don't know that it was hidden, yeah. but that's a possibility. Like, you got to think that's an option. You know, it's got to be an option. It's got to be, yeah, it could be out there somewhere. I don't, I, maybe George prefers it to be lost because then there's just so much he has to explain. But if he wants that yeah. book to appear, <laughs> a Dragonstone is a fantastic place for it to pop up. Or other things. Again, you threw out an example of, of a possible arcane thing. 
books are a really straightforward example, but there's other things. Yeah, more eggs. Like here's another example, like the Order of Dragon Keepers. We talked about them. The Dragon Keepers, their job was day-to-day, take care of the dragons, feed them, look after them. They probably learned a lot about dragons by doing that. The Order of Dragon Keepers was almost entirely wiped out during the dance and then went extinct when the dragons did. Like they just stopped training them, presumably. Like why do you need dragon keepers if there's no dragons? What happened to all their collected learning? There had to be some of it. They had to have be able to pass it on to the future dragon keepers. The order existed for a while. It lasted for like 130 years. So, yeah. Some of it could be in Valyrian, written in runes. So people wouldn't necessarily recognize what it is. They wouldn't know the significance of it because a lot of people can speak high Valyrian, but most people can't read it, right? Like, I don't, I don't know that Tyrion could probably read it and a lot of scholars probably can, but there are probably people who can speak it that can't read it. And I remember that reading is way less common in this world than in ours. So, eggs. Of course, eggs is another one. There could be eggs hidden there. Mace Tyrell mentions this fabled horde of dragon eggs that was hidden. You know who found dragon eggs on Dragonstone not that long ago? Ares II, the Mad King. Quote, depths of Dragonstone, some so old that they turned to stone. These are probably the eggs that Danny got. Because Ares tried to hatch them and failed. Varus probably made off with them and gave them to Illyrio, who gave them to Danny. Mm-hmm. There's other sources of eggs. But again, the depths of Dragonstone 20, 25 years ago. That wasn't that long ago. <laughs> and if those eggs had been there before and known about, wouldn't they maybe have sold them if they had been turned to stone? They're super valuable. I don't know, y'all. There's what I'm saying is there's a, a huge amount of potential for secrets, artifacts, tomes on dragon Precedent set, right? If they found some dragon eggs there, there might be more dragon eggs there. Boom. Yes, you're right. Totally right. Why not? Why not? Like, and they could be like in a cave. Like the dragons made, wild dragons made caves all over many different places. There could have been eggs left behind that people didn't even know about because they were left in some cave by a wild dragon. The cannibal could have left an egg. The gray worm, gray, I said gray worm. <laughs> gray worm with a W-Y-R-M. <laughs> I meant to say gray ghost. <laughs> but yeah, so there were wild dragons and there were surely wild dragons before Sheep Stealer, gray ghost and the cannibal that are unnamed. But maybe there's books hidden that have their names. Ha ha ha. So lots of options. Real quick, let's do a rundown of who the Prince of Dragonstone was because for, for a while, the Prince of Dragonstone was... The prince or princess was the, the heir to the Iron Throne was the prince of Dragonstone. And there's been other places in the world, in the real world, that has used a similar structure where there's a sort of secondary title that stands in for next in line to the throne. But they weren't... In my, um, in my world, it's called co-host. <laughs> co-host. <laughs> <laughs> so the... Magor was the Prince of Dragonstone during the reign of Aenys, but he wasn't the heir. He just, this was before that was established. Aegon the Uncrowned was. Aegon the Uncrowned, the one who was usurped by Magor. Then Reyna Targaryen, the first ever Targaryen princess, Reyna, who also arguably should have been queen, got to live there for a while, but she wasn't the heir. She lived there for a period, maybe about 10 years. I don't know. It's, it's unclear exactly. Then Aemon, father of Rhaenys, the queen who never was, older brother to Balon, Balon being the father of Viserys and Daemon. Aemon was Prince of Dragonstone for 30 years, and then he died. And then Balon was Prince of Dragonstone for about nine years. And then Viserys 
before he was king, was Prince of Dragonstone for about two years after the Great Council named him. Then there was no Prince of Dragonstone for a good two years there. Then he named Rhaenyra. And she was Princess of Dragonstone for quite a while, for about almost 25 years. Between the years 129 and 143, was a mess. As the Dance of Dragons will be well portrayed, we don't need to get into the detail, but it changed a few times given all the deaths. Then as things settled down, and, and, and after the war even, there was, it wasn't even settled then because the king had no heirs and blah, blah, blah. So things started to settle down. 143 to 157, Daron the Young Dragon, the one who conquered Dorne without dragons, was the Prince of Dragonstone once he was born. And then when he became king, he never had kids. His brother, Baylor the Blessed, was Prince of Dragonstone for four years. Baylor the Blessed had no heir directly, no kids. So there was no Prince of Dragonstone his entire life. But briefly, it became Aegon, who became Aegon the Unworthy when Viserys II ascended. But Viserys II was only king for one year. When Aegon the Unworthy became king, his son, Daron, eventually Daron the Good, was Prince of Dragonstone for 12 years. Then Baylor Breakspear. Remember Baylor Breakspear, Sean, of course, from Duncan Egg. He was Prince of Dragonstone for 25 years. And, of course, that was a real tragedy when he died. His son, Valar, was Prince of Dragonstone for a few minutes uh, before the spring sickness got him. Then Rhaegel, Targaryen, for six years. His son, Aelor, for two years. His daughter and twin, Aelor, for about two more years. Then Makar, father of Egg and Aemon, and Daron the Drunkard. And Arian Brightflame was Prince of Dragonstone for a couple years before he became king. 221 to 231, Daron... Well, Prince Darren the Drunkard was Prince of Dragonstone for a little while. Then Arian Brightflame took over at some point when Daron died. It's not clear at what point, but sometime before 232. Then Prince Duncan the Small, after Egg was named by the Great Council. So that's Duncan, Prince of Dragonflies, for a good six years. Jaehaerys... The... Can we just go back to Baylor Breakspear? Can we just go back to that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Jaehaerys II for 20 years before Summerhall, and then he became king after Summerhall. Then Ares II was Prince of Dragonstone for three years, and then king. And Rhaegar was the last prince of Dragonstone in the Targaryen reign, and he was prince of Dragonstone for 21 so, years. So my question is, are there, were any of these examples of someone like losing the title because someone is now the new heir? Yeah, I guess a couple of them were. And, and it also, it bears mention that Daron the Drunkard, even though he was prince of Dragonstone, he didn't live there because he didn't like it. He lived at Summerhall while it was still existed. It was a very nice place. But yeah, for example, yeah, Arian and Daron were both Prince of Dragonstone to their father, Makar, because one died than the other. And then the same thing happened with Duncan and Jaehaerys. Duncan abdicated. Remember, Duncan was like, no, I'm, I refuse to dis divorce Jenny of Oldstone. They're like, well, you're, you can't inherit. So he ceased to be Prince of Dragonstone, but he didn't, it wasn't, wasn't through his death, though. Does that answer your question, or was that not what you're getting at? My quite kind of advanced my question. You didn't think of one. My example was my, my thought was like, was there an example where like Daron was the prince of Dragonstone and then Egg, you know, Daron was still alive or something, and then Egg was like, actually, I'm gonna name my son the new prince of Dragonstone. Oh, you know, like something like that, where someone took the spot even though the person didn't die. Or but the, the example of, of of Duncan abdicating was one mm. for sure of something like that. Took it, but didn't die. Yeah, maybe not. I guess I can't. Because, sure. you know, like, like if, yeah, yeah, it would be a very specific situation, but that was my question. Yeah. So Stannis, again, the first non-Targaryen to hold Dragonstone in any capacity. And he was Prince of Dragonstone as Robert's heir for a while there. 
until Robert. I was going to ask, did they maintain that title, Prince of Dragons? Oh, is that Stannis? Well, that's a, a, sort of an example, a similar example, yeah. is because Stannis was no longer Prince of Dragonstone when Joffrey was born. Oh, but he got go. to keep Dragonstone. Yeah, there we go. That's the example that I was, the kind of situation that I was envisioning was that yeah. yeah, someone's living there. That's their home is Dragonstone. But now someone else is the Prince of Dragonstone. Yeah. Like, what a weird situation. So they yes, that's it. didn't name Joffrey Prince of Dragonstone. Mm-hmm. But he was the heir, obviously. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so that was so, and that's it's reasonable. They it's a new dynasty, so they can change the rules to how it works, I guess. You know, and uh, that's another thing they didn't have time to establish because they, <laughs> they they didn't really hold on to the throne exactly, did they? And, and Nina points out this was a, a actually pretty smoothly done, which implies it probably wasn't Robert's idea. <laughs> <laughs> maybe John Aaron's idea or something like that mm-hmm. to give Stannis Dragonstone to keep him to, to keep that tradition and and his, he is the heir at that point because Robert didn't have kids yet so it keeps that tradition but everyone knew Robert would probably have his own kids but he also didn't want to he, 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 he wasn't ever planning on ejecting Stannis from, from Dragonstone it seems like he was like you can have that and that's yours for good and we're not going to keep doing this Air, the air rules Dragonstone thing. We're going to use that as a way to transition away from that. I guess that's what they would have done had they had more time. Had the dynasty continued, <laughs> had Robert not been overthrown. I seem to remember when or Ned was sons, rather. investigating. You know, he was piecing together the, the Joffrey. The, the kids weren't really Roberts, you know. Part of that investigation was a lot of interaction between Stannis and John Aaron. I remember Ned thinking it was unusual, wondering if Stannis knew something or had something to do with it. I wonder how much John, I wonder how much Stannis, I wonder if Stannis is more ambitious than we realize. <laughs> yeah, no. I, if he was angling with John Aaron to make sure he got to keep Dragonstone. I, I think that's a fair point. I think Stannis is ambitious. I think he definitely thought he deserved to be king as well as uh, the law being on his side. I don't buy it when he says, I don't want to be king, it's the law. I don't really buy that. I think the part of him definitely wants to be king. But he's also right, the law's on his side. I mean, he's not wrong, <laughs> but I think, he's, I think he's one of those guys that needs to take a, a longer look at himself. <laughs> he needs to, he needs or, to deep, yeah. he, needs, he needs a little therapy, maybe. <laughs> or maybe to give Stannis more credit, whether we should or not, I don't know. But maybe John Aaron realized by spending time with Stannis that he really earned Dragon's Okay, that He yeah. should get to keep maybe. it. Some kid being born is going to take it from this man who went through that siege, you know? I yeah. Can see that. yeah, maybe. That's a fair point. So if we think about this, Targaryen's having dragon dreams real quick. If dragons are stronger on Dragonstone, which seems to be plenty of evidence for that, are dragon dreams or sorcery related to dragons, is that also stronger on Dragonstone? I want to hone in on dreams specifically because we got Stannis, we got Melisandre manipulating him. She thinks she's doing it for good reasons, but she is manipulating him. Now, she's not getting directly in his dreams. But she is interpreting things for him. Anytime you have dreamers, anytime you have dreams, you have the chance that those dreams are being manipulated. Bran's dreams have been manipulated. Blood Raven's been in his head. I don't think he's like lying to him for some dark purpose, but they're trying to get him to do something important. Get him to follow a path that they see as necessary or else the world will end. Maybe they're wrong about the world ending part, but they believe it sincerely. Melisandre believes it sincerely. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to interrupt and bring up one other example relevant to House of the Dragon. Okay. Joe Magician points out that after Rhaenyra is named heir, Damon goes back to Dragonstone and he lives there for a while until Viserys is like, That's no, true. send Viserya away, you know, and then That's he true. leaves. So he does get ejected by force from his Dragonstone seat. 
That is true. Good point. Because he was the he was the heir by default. Yeah, and for so a then while. he lost out on it, and eventually they were like, "No, don't live here anymore." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see a bit of back and forth with Damon and his brother a bit. Yes, for sure. <laughs> this will be a, a big focus. Much to discuss on that is coming. So that what I was trying to get at as well is maybe some of these dreams have been manipulated. If not the dreams, the interpretation of the prophecies. Aegon, from Aegon the Conqueror to Stannis to Daenerys to whoever, whomever else. We've got someone like Marwyn saying prophecies, you know, very dangerous. It's easy to misinterpret. It's easy to get things wrong. You can think you have it right, but you're, it's just one word being thrown off. Like Aemon, Maester Aemon, probably the actual wisest, most learned character we've ever seen on page. The only one who even comes close is maybe Septon Barth. And Septon Barth is not a POV character or around any POV character. He's purely a figure from history. Maester... Sword Raven's close. Okay, true, true. But that's a good point. That's a good point. But Aemon is... Got prince versus princess wrong in the translation of... (laughs) Like, it's like... Oh, he realizes that at age 100. He's like, we've been, I've been working on this my whole life and we just figured out that prince could mean princess because of a translation error, semantics, gender in the... Tra- like, that's a pretty normal mistake to make in translation. Yeah, he just figured that out. And we know there's other mistakes that have been made through prophecy. George has been very clear that prophecies are unclear. So any prophecy that's... Whether it was Aegon thinking he had to save the realm, whether it's Melisandre thinking Stannis has to do it, there's plenty of room for them to be wrong. <laughs> Just always keep that in mind. And it could even be true for Danny, who seems to really be the object of prophecy. That doesn't mean they're going to get all that right either. And the reason to tie all this together is Dragonstone seems to be recurring location, a crucial recurring location in dreams and prophecies. But it's also creepy as hell. <laughs> so you have this crucial, vibrant, mysterious, dark, dangerous, mysterious location it's pretty overwhelming on both. I mean, this is one of the first plot lines there was Stannis and Melisandre trying to burn Edric Storm. <laughs> trying to kill a child for his king's blood. Dark blood magic. The evil stuff, man. Davos is like trying to convince them. It's like, this is evil? Like, come on. Like, how do I need to tell you this is evil? Like, I don't get why you don't just get it obvious. It's like, isn't it obvious that this is evil? You're burning a child, man. Come on now. You know, and, and it's weird because even readers are like, Maybe it's justified. (laughs) Like, well, yeah. Davos, of course, saves Edric Storm. But have other children been sacrificed in this place? Has Davos damned mankind by doing that? Has he allowed the others to make it down? It's possible. It is possible. I would guess no, but it's possible. So yeah, and then Shireen gets grayscale from being there. So it's just like this place is rejecting them because they're not Targaryens. So I don't know. The place isn't good for kids. Speaking of creepiness, let's have a quote with Melisandre involved, shall we? The night fire burned against the gathering dark. A great bright beast whose shifting orange light threw shadows 20 feet tall across the guard. All along the walls of Dragonstone, the army of gargoyles and grotesque seemed to stir and shift. What a evocative line, the the flames dancing, the tall shadows. What's funny, though, is real-life gargoyles were used for controlling rainwater. (laughs) That's the main purpose of real-world gargoyles, is to keep it from running down the building. It it spouts off the building 
and shoots away from it so the water isn't constantly running down the wall. Because if it did, over time, that would wreck the walls. So it would actually destroy the foundation. Also erosion at the base of the... Yeah, you, you, need, you want that buffer. Yeah. So it's funny to think about it that way, but that's really the purpose. What's funny too is that there are non-functional wars. Like some, there's also a tradition of seeing gargoyles as as evil spirits. And it's funny to see that a lot of times they were on churches, which is like, why are those on churches? Well, it's like, it was, this was spun as you need the church to protect you from this. <laughs> this is why you should come to church because this is what awaits you if you don't, you know, things like that. <laughs> and non-functional wards are a thing also. Like gargoyles are also seen as wards against evil, but they're for rainwater control. There's also non-rainwater controlling ones called, they have the weirdest names, hunky punks. That's the thing. Hunky punk. That's the name of a, a type of icon or spirit that's put on the, a building to drive off spirits that it has no functional use. It doesn't have, it's not like a funnel or, ter- or a channel of any kind. I was a hunky punk when I was 23 years old. <laughs> Another one is a Sheila Nagig, which is a fem- feminine statue with a giant vulva. There's lots of these on walls, on buildings <laughs> in the medieval times were built like what? <laughs> yep, there you go. <laughs> so Danny again, born underneath all these gargoyles. Let's not forget Azorahai, born amidst smoke and salt. And when you hear this next quote, keep that in mind. Grim places need lighting, not solemnity. And Dragonstone was grim beyond a doubt, a lonely citadel in the wet waste surrounded by storm and salt with the smoking shadow of a mountain at its back. Smoke, salt, yeah, boom, there you go, storms, yeah, mm-hmm, pretty clear when you spell it out like that, huh? That's Crescent, by the way, Crescent's point of view, Crescent, very useful for our Dragonstone delvings, Davos, very important, but Crescent, the longest chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire, his intro, or his, uh, his prologue. So, again, <laughs> just another person weighing in on Dragonstone being grim, lonely, <laughs> dark, yeah, all that stuff. Trivia question, what's the second longest chapter? I, I have that in my spreadsheet. I think it's Sansa, Elaine, one of Elaine's chapters. And I think the third one is actually like one of Victorian's chapters. Or no, that might be fourth or fifth. But yeah, I think, it's, I think it's Sansa or Elaine. Elaine two in A Feast for Crows, maybe? Anyway. What about the shortest? Is that noteworthy? Yeah, the shortest is, I think, our, one of Arya's Red Wedding chapters when she's just like caught outside. Like the axe in the back of the head mm-hmm. one, I think is only like 10 minutes long. But there might be one that's even shorter. But yeah, there's a couple like, it's usually like an action chapter that's the really short ones. Yeah. Real quick as well, who are the vassals, traditional vassals of Dragonstone? Even in the, in the time of the Targaryens, even before the conquest, Dragonstone exerted control over Driftmark, Claw Isle, Sharp Point, Sweetport Sound, and Stone Dance. Stone Dance is Massey. Sweetport Sound is Sunglass. Sharp Point is Bar Emmon. Claw Isle is Celtigar. Driftmark is Valarian. So, of course, Driftmark and Claw Isle would have been ruled by someone else before the Targaryens came. They would have maybe been ruled by the Valerians when the Valerians took Drift Dragonstone. It's not clear if they took any of the other islands at that time or if that came later. Nina says, One question I've always had is the extent to which the princes of Dragonstone had real feudal control over the houses of the Narrow Sea. These families are sometimes called, quote, vassals to Dragonstone, but it's unclear how this affected the relationship between these families and the various princes of Dragonstone. Did the princes of Dragonstone draw some or all their income from taxes levied on these lords? Did they sit in judgment on them? Or was it just a 
we recognize you're more powerful. So there's a lot of courtesy back and forth. It's interesting to see because some like, for example, Massey was really a vassal of the Stormlands, but they started just hanging out with the Targaryens more and just drifting in that direction. Like, you know what? I think we'd rather be your vassal. And it was never really official. They just would show up at the council meetings. And I don't know if Argolak the Arrogant was mad about that or he never did anything about it. But once the Targaryens conquered him, it just became irrelevant at that point. They were all Targaryen vassals after that. So we'll see if any of those houses add up. Now, as, as well, one more house has been added as a vassal of Dragonstone because Stannis gave Cape Wrath to Davos's house and formed a new noble house, House Seaworth. So that obviously wasn't around in the Targaryen era and it's, it remains to be seen if that will stick. But that was created as a new vassal of Dragonstone under Stannis. So, Outlook. Let's repeat some of our questions, uh, summarize some of the open questions because a lot of these questions were raised without answers. We don't know how to answer a lot of these questions. It was drawing attention to the many mysteries of Dragonstone. So, for example, why, again, we're still wondering why did they, the target, why were the Targaryens the first to expand into Westeros? Why didn't it happen before? Why did they only go to Dragonstone? Why did they not go further into the continent? Tyrion wonders about that himself. He asked the question. And, and since he's likely to go there, Dragonstone, he may seek that answer. He's a very thoughtful, knowledgeable character. So I really look forward to him going to Dragonstone and exploring its secrets. He's the kind of curious guy that would want to know some of these things. And some of it might have political significance or power. There would be power behind it. Makoro as well. Another learned, interesting figure that could take an interest in some of this the blood and fire of Valyria, the ancient mysteries. And again, TV will fill in some gaps as well, or at least give us things to think about that we might realize, oh, wow, this one line George alluded to is something they blew up into a whole scene. And maybe this has been Errol all along. We just didn't see it. So we got to be cautious with that. TV is not books, but the two do have a lot in common. And with George's additional involvement, like we said, there is more reason to look at it as potentially book relevant. I'm sure we'll get a lot of insights and clarification, yeah. but I bet we have just as many new questions mm. also. <laughs> yeah, and I'm looking forward to those new questions. Those questions are a lot of what we have the most fun with. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be scenes, like scenes that take place there. The Dance of the Dragons, like really intense people running around, the tunnels, fighting on the stairs, more people in the dungeons, executions, some running to a dragon to get there quickly, jumping on the saddle, seeing where the dragons are stored. I mean, George has described a good deal. A lot of it's in Fire and Blood, but Fire and Blood doesn't have POVs. So it's not personal. The emotion isn't quite as strong. We're going to see it through characters who, have, who are invested in what's happening, who are, there's tension and drama and things like that. Last we saw, or heard rather, we didn't see it. We heard it. There's a chance. It's an important distinction given Cersei's chapters. She is sometimes lied to. But we're told Loras Tyrell captured it from Stannis' Castell and Sir Rollum Storm. We don't know what happened to Sir Rollum Storm, whether he lived or not, whether he surrendered. We do know Loras was badly hurt, burned by oil, hit by a crossbow bolt, smashed by mace. That's one of the possible things that was exaggerated to Cersei for political intrigue reasons. But I would guess he was badly hurt. The Redwine fleet was crucial to taking Dragonstone. Remember what happened? Loras was like, please, your grace, let me storm the castle because by taking Dragonstone, they freed up the Redwine fleet to go stop Euron from taking the Shield Island, well, which he already did. 
and wrecking the reach. So Loras was being very heroic there. He's like, let me charge Dragonstone. Let me take it for you. He says it that way. He's like, let me take it for you, your grace. So, but he's really doing it for the reach. He's doing it so that the Redwine fleet can stop dealing with Dragonstone and go help his people. So props to Loras for that. But unfortunately, it seems, he seems to have paid nearly the ultimate price for that. And the Red Wine fleet will probably lose to Euron, so that probably won't go that well either, unfortunately. So, relevantly, there's not a lot of ships there. Dragonstone is lightly held, probably. Which is also relevant, because it's going to change hands again. Multiple times, possibly. Danny's going to come at some point. Before that, though, Cersei took note that Orain Waters wanted it. Lorraine Waters is a bastard of House Valarian, which means he does have a little Targaryen ancestry vaguely. He's got 10 large ships. You'd think he might be capable of taking Dragonstone. If he does, then he may have to contend with Danny directly, which I can't imagine he comes out on top of that one. <laughs> may have to contend with or may get to unite with. Yes, that is another possibility. He's like, actually, why don't I just join your side? I'm, I've got Valarian heritage. Maybe I fight for you and you give me Driftmark. And he's like, I'll settle for that. You know, that could entirely happen. That would be way better than where he started, right? Yeah, definitely. And Sean, you have our closing thought here. You noted that Danny has never been to Dragonstone since her birth, but she's got this faux Dragonstone that her dragon, Drogon, has made for himself. So she's kind of like, like her version of home. She's still trying to associate it with home. And yeah, it's a, it a good catch. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I just did a search on Ice and Fire for Dragonstone, prepping for this, which by the way, there's hundreds of yeah. <laughs> examples of, the, yeah. of it being used throughout the course of things. But I, I noticed in, I'm pretty sure, Danny's last chapter, when, uh, you know, her little temporary little home, when she's lost out in the wilderness, she, she calls it Dragonstone. And I realize if you read some of those lines, thinking of Dragonstone as Dragonstone, like there's a lot of potential double meaning mm-hmm. here, maybe some irony or foreshadowing that uh, Martin is trying to evoke. And I, there's, I don't know, a dozen or something of them, but let me just read a couple of them just, just to give you an idea of what I'm thinking sure. of. Sure. Here, I'll fill this in real quick. Guilty Undertaker says, okay, yeah. Davos probably got some former Connington lands. That was probably part of the gift that was given to him by Stannis. That could be a problem given that the Conningtons are back with young Griff and all that. So maybe that will be disputed later, but maybe that'll just be solved by there being no more Conningtons when it's all said and done. Who knows? <laughs> I don't, obviously, John Connington's not like to be around much longer given his grayscale, but there, he's not the only surviving Connington. Okay, here, here's a couple. She's talking about Drogon, but no matter how far the dragon flew each day, come nightfall, some instinct drew him home to Dragonstone. Mm. So could you t- imagine maybe that if Danny is the dragon and maybe, I don't know, nightfall is the, the long night or something like that, you know, on some much bigger scale mm. that, that you could read it like that, right? Rather than Drogon, you know, it, it's the dragon meaning some force that can defeat the others is yeah. always at nightfall drawn back to Dragonstone. If Dragonstone is some hinge of magic, right? Another one, she turned back the way she'd come to where Dragonstone rose above the grasslands like a clenched fist. It looked so close. Mm. Now she's talking about that little, you know, hill, you know, that she's been calling home, but Dragonstone might seem so close from how far she's gone or how far she needs to go. It's vaguely similar to some of those Davos quotes of him approaching it too, of how he looks from the distance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Similar the way vibe. it rises above the grasslands, like it's a higher goal than this Dothraki sea that she's been tracking. Yeah, and it's whatever. the sea. That's what she was... I love that it's the Dothraki sea also, which is... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, So anyway. that's really good. And we do I, have... You, we do have another, at least one other example of a dragon having like that homing instinct of going back to Dragonstone, the proper Dragonstone, after a long time. And we've also got that, we even saw that on the original TV show with uh, Drogon going to Valyria as if it was his home or something like that. So they to- that's not the same idea, but it's a variation on that idea. You know, it's more a metaf- metaphysical home where all the dragons were born potentially. But yeah. That's really good. And Sean, you know, another thing about that that fits really well is that chapter contains that that really short wall that she wakes up next to and the little ants have crawled over it and have been attacking, biting her in the night. And she thinks about it like the wall of Westeros. It's full of metaphor and it's not even subtle because she thinks about it as the wall of Westeros, like the, the ice wall. And so it fits in there as well with your, this dragonstone is that dragonstone, this wall is that wall. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Drawn home to her birthplace. You're right. She is drawn. That's where she's drawn to. Like the stories, the justice of her cause, the fact that it's her home. Yeah, it's all pulling like, her there. Listen to this one. My flesh will feed the wolves and carrion crows, she thought sadly, <laughs> and worms will burrow through my womb. Her eyes went back to Dragonstone. It looked smaller. Mm. She could see smoke rising from its wind-carved summit miles away. Anyway, but my point was like this call to wolves yeah. and crows yeah. and it her womb being even. buried through makes Dragonstone seem smaller. Like maybe, the, you know, maybe she doesn't have a legacy. So it's not as big and ideal. I don't know. It, I, I'm sure there's a it's, it's, I, it only occurred to me 12 hours ago yeah. to look at this. <laughs> I'm sure there's more to be drawn from. Yeah, it, so. that's a whole nother thing. Yeah, that one that, that that chapter by itself has so much going on. I mean, it's her last chapter. So yeah, like the last time we get to see Danny. So it's, of course, the last chapter for each of the main POVs in each book is is often some of the most important stuff, especially when it leaves us waiting and hanging. All right, folks, let's wrap it up. The trivia question today, to repeat it, the Dragonstone is made out of volcanic black rock, one of its vassal castles. That should be said more often because it rhymes. One of the vassal castles is made of the same white marble used to make the Erie. The answer is High Tide. High Tide made by Coralius Velaryon, the sea snake of that same pale white marble. High Tide is when, when tide, and it's called High Tide because when the tide is up, it's separate from the island. It stands alone in the water. When tide is down, you can cross it, you can walk to it. But there's only, it's only crossable by causeway when tide is up. So, Kind of like, again, a little bit like River Run-ish with the, the sea being a natural barrier and it being built around that. It was really interesting, like how they build that thing. They had to wait for the tides each time. Like, okay, we can't work right now. The tide is up. But <laughs> when the low tide, get in there, start laying the bricks. And the bonus question there was, where did that marble come from? Because it doesn't come from the Vale. The answer is Tarth. The marble, the white marble came from Tarth, which probably means... The Tarth Castle is made from it too, or at least uses some of that marble. It's not explicit. We've not been there, but I would guess so. They're like, no, they only export it for other castles. They're like, ah, we don't want to use that. Too white. Gets stains too easily. (laughs) All right, folks. We mentioned a few other episodes today, such as the Defiance of Duskendale episode. We talked about Ares II, and he became obsessed with fire after his time in Duskendale, which is when he 
tried to hatch those eggs he found on Dragonstone. Summerhall was mentioned, speaking of Ares and Aegon V and lots of other Targaryens and hatching eggs and great heat and arcane and dragon dreams and all that. We got two episodes on that. Next time, we'll be talking about the free city of Lys. 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 However you say it. Many names. Many names. It is considered by many to be the Valyrian party spot, the Valyrian paradise region, which means it has a lot of Valyrians still, a lot of power, a lot of wealth. Maybe not the infrastructure, not the soldiers, perhaps, but a lot of that culture lingered behind. A lot of the elite. It's the, the playground of the elite, and some of that structure remains. So we'll be talking about that. It beat out on our Patreon poll, the Basilisk Isles, the Red Mountains of Dorne, and House Florent. So that's that. So you can support the show on Patreon, Spotify, or through our website by signing up to be a monthly supporter or by sending a one-time donation. That feature is available only on the website. Recurring donations are also available on the website and on Patreon and Spotify. We are going to Santa Fe, August 17th to 20th, to see the premiere of House of the Dragon at George R. R. Martin's private theater, John Cocteau Cinema, which he has screenings for. It's open to the public for some screenings, but not for this one. So we're very excited about that. We're going to get a little bit of a head start on reviewing the episode, but of course our review time is the same. And in case you missed that, just to clarify, every Monday at 6 Eastern, every Saturday at 3 Eastern, we'll be covering House of the Dragon. The last Valar Reredis episode until House of the Dragon ends will be, well, season one ends, will be August 14th. Yeah, as we'll be out of town the days leading up to the 21st. That's why we won't have one day of new episode. Also, it's the same day as the episode, so people will be, yeah. you know, we should have something ready exciting for, for y'all yeah. that week. So. That's right. So we'll and that and we'll be doing more beyond those those two episodes per week. We'll be having some scripted content as well. And all, another reminder. Oh, I guess. Oh, I just this is a. We'll also. I'm dipping our toes in the water of sharing stuff on TikTok. <laughs> so I guess if you're on TikTok, you can follow the history of Westeros and the short form things we do for YouTube. We'll see how it all works out. But if you're on TikTok, give us a follow. Give us a follow. Help us out. Maybe we'll follow you back. The early people to follow, we'll definitely follow you back. Yeah, yeah. We'll follow you back if you follow us early on, for sure. So, yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Am I going to have to get on TikTok now? I've been trying to get Sean. I mean, not that I'm (laughs) asking. You should. But I do actually think Sean has, Sean (laughs) does short form content. So he really should should do short form dancing. (laughs) 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 And another reminder, folks, if you're going to be at DragonCon, In Atlanta, the weekend of Labor Day, which is when it is every year, we'll be screening episode three of House of the Dragon at the Plaza Theater. September 4th. And we'll be sharing details on how to RSVP to that. Join us on social media for more info on that. It's it's like a micro con within the con. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, con within the con. Definitely. Thanks everyone who showed up today to watch us live. We enjoy your presence and appreciate it as well. Thanks to Nina for her great notes on Dragonstone today and for all the other notes and suggestions she gives us on a regular basis. Thanks to our patrons for the financial support. You all are too valuable to, for me to express in words. We couldn't do this without you all, and that's a fact. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, Kevin, and Michael for our music and our visuals, our 
graphics, our maps, our intro, and soon we'll be adding Bran Winslow to that thank you because he is working on our House of the Dragon intro. That yeah, is looking really to. good, y'all. Like, he was here for five days or something working on it here in Atlanta, and I got to see he's doing, you know, his own 3D-rendered painted table, a Blackfire, Dark Sister, Dragonstone, a 3D version of our new logo. Like, it's looking really dope. Yeah, we can't wait to unveil that. And it won't be long now. Thanks as well to our mods, those of those people who help out with our group management and administering. And check out our Threadless shop if you are so inclined. We got shirts and stickers. New designs have been added. Our new logo that you may have noticed is available in shirt format. We've got some funny stuff, some some cool stuff. And you get, there's a few variants. You can get the traditional new logo, which is Drogon's egg, or you could get the Rhaegal variant or a purple variant or a rainbow egg variant. So we could theoretically have a History of Westeros meetup where we all have different dragon egg color shirts. That's fun. <laughs> That's right. What is Here Be Dragons talking about today? I don't think they're streaming. No I, stream I looked just a little okay. while ago, so unless they just haven't created the stream yet, they looks like they have the week off. Well, All right. We just didn't line up with them. Well, we'll just say hello to our friends over at Here Be Dragons. And until next time, folks, you know what to do. Valar, re-read us. <laughs>